I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. I've got some exciting news for you. I've decided to wrap up the initial Always Faithful series where I describe my experience as an African-American Marine Infantry Officer in the United States Marine Corps, following the publication of a controversial Marine Corps Time article by Colonel Thomas Hobbs, where he describes the racial bias towards black and brown officers in the Marines, I decided to leverage my platform to share my experience. After releasing the first episode, I received countless phone calls and texts from black and white Marine officers expressing their support and sharing similar observations and experiences. Generals and colonels began reaching out to me on social media, wanting to connect, and virtually overnight, it was as if my podcast found its audience. I tried to record part two on multiple occasions to no avail. I don't know if it was the pressure of knowing others were listening or not wanting to offend my peers. Either way, I couldn't find my voice. After several months, I've decided to reattack it with the support of fellow Marine and confidant, Colonel Thomas Hobbs from episode 15. I called Colonel Hobbs for support up, and together we work through part two and pick up where episode 13 left off, including my return from the rifle range, the social dynamics of life in an infantry battalion, and the friction I experienced with my company commander. This is the first of four to five final episodes of this season as we begin our slow march to close out season one of this podcast. This episode is a bit longer than anything else I've previously recorded, so kick back, strap in, and enjoy the ride. As always, I truly appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy today's show. You start a business with him, you make commitments to him, we all can profit and win and reinvest with our friends, and circle back to the hood and teach them youngsters to do it, do it, do it, And we're live. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of my show. Appreciate you all tuning in with me today. I got another very special guest. I actually got a return of a special guest, Colonel Thomas Hobbs. What's going on, sir? Hey, Mike. So good to be back. I really appreciate you inviting me back again. Yeah, man. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I'll tell you all, this is why I had to bring uh, Colonel Hobbs back on. I am on my march to close out season one of Confessions of a Native Son. When I initially started this podcast, my intent was to just do an episode every week talking about, you know, books and literature and culture from the perspective of African-American male, Naval Academy graduate, Marine officer, and uh, entrepreneur. So I want to talk about business. I want to talk about James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. I want to talk about all this stuff. And uh, one of the things that's happened over the course of this pandemic, over the course of this year, really, is just a lot more self-awareness, you know? Um, I was just talking with the sir about, um, you know, understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are. And one of the things I found out about me is, keeping up a content schedule of publishing every week um, is very difficult for me. So what I got to do is I got to get ahead of the curve and get out there and start batching content because the way my mind works and the way my brain works, it's like I got to do a bunch of different stuff. And so in order to make it seem like there's a consistent flow, I just need to get out ahead of it and record a bunch of episodes. And so what I'm going to do is uh, I need to get through Always Faithful and close it out because I told my girlfriend that I was closing season one of Native Son, which was going to be this this episode, right? I just want to do one more episode. She's like, Mike, you cannot close out the season without finishing Always Faithful. And so uh, I decided to get some support up because uh, I told the sir, you know, when I started this podcast, I didn't think anybody was listening. <laughs> it's just like you're like talking into a mic. 
Then all of a sudden, like the downloads started to creep up. And there's actually a lot of people listening because people message me. They shoot me messages and all this kind of stuff. And what I found was when I tried to record part two of Always Faithful, when I, you know, returned back to first time eighth Marines after getting shipped to the rifle range, um, it was just hard for me to do that episode. And I, I don't know if I was like having podcast block or something, but I tried to record that episode like five or six times until I finally gave up and was like, look, I just got to keep pushing with the show so what we're doing we're doing a slow grind we're gonna march to the end of this season right we're gonna close out always faithful we're gonna do another monologue show with yours truly and then i'm gonna bring the team on and just close it out in style but before we can do that we gotta we gotta end the story you know i don't know if there's ever really an end to the story because i'm still out here but i thought it would be fair i thought it wouldn't be fair to the listeners and especially those you came on the platform without uh, wrapping this this part of my life up for you all. So I'm super excited to have a sir here. If you're a Marine, you know about support up, right? Sometimes we can't do everything ourselves and uh, we need some help. We need some uplift. And I'll tell you, I had a listener to this show reach out to me and say, hey, Mike, I heard you were struggling with Always Faithful. It might, do, it might help you to have somebody, you know, speak through the stuff with you. And so what I decided to do was like one better. I'm just gonna have him come on the show and I'm gonna give him the reins and let him um, interview me. So I'm super excited about this. But first, let's let's catch up. Uh, Colonel Hobbs, how has your life been since the article and coming on my show? And, uh, you know, your episode is the highest download episode of all the podcasts. Uh, that's a credit to you because the uh, I've had so many people talk to me about your first uh, Always Faithful episode and how much courage it took you to speak like that. So I think if there's any if people listen into the episode we did together, it's because your first one was so powerful. In fact, I had a. Uh, a person on the assistant commandant's task force on diversity called me up and talked to me and she had been listening to your podcast and that's what made her call me. So, so you, you've had an impact and I would say I've been really, really busy um, with responses from my article. Um, and I'll say that there's been a, there's been a f- couple people that have called wanting to become anti-racist, but I've, been, I've had more phone calls from people or more, more emails from people uh, that have been resisting, I think. And it's almost the point where I think it's willful ignorance. They just don't want to see how uh, rigged the system is. Uh, I think it's been exhausting. And I know you feel it too, to, to try to keep explaining over and over um, to people that seem to be unwilling to want to hear. That, that's that been the hardest part for me to keep going when uh, there's so much pushback, I guess. Yeah, for me, I don't even try to explain, right? I just come on my platform and I speak my truth. I share my opinions. I share my lived experiences. And like I said with Yoshi, man, writing a Facebook comment, doing all that kind of stuff, sending out a tweet, that's lazy. Writing mm-hmm. an article like you love. I mean, when was the last time somebody sat down and wrote something? I'm trying to write this book. You know how hard it is? Mm-hmm. How hard it is to write an essay, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's lazy to do anything else, right? So yeah. for me to come on my podcast and just talk like this, or you write that article, yo, we are stepping out, you know, in a, in a new light. And uh, one of the things we talked about, too, is I'll tell you, like, all the love for the show is it's not all love. You know, some people feel some kind of way about uh, my podcast. I think um, it bothers them because I think I make a lot of people feel uncomfortable, potentially. Maybe that's what it is, because I think for the longest time and this is why I do any venture I do. Right. I do something because I see a problem that is not getting addressed. And one of the things that's as a black man right in the hustle who in the struggle in the yeah. come. Right. Yeah. I never saw the successful black men really speak about their existence. You know, yeah. point of almost like, yo, was it all sunshines and rainbow? Maybe it's just me. You yeah. know, maybe there's something wrong with me. 
Um, and I just always bothered. That was always that always bothered me. But as you become older and mature, you realize there's a lot of power dynamics at play. Yep. And so it's very um, risky for certain people to speak their truth for willing for risking losing what they have. Mm-hmm. Very easy. It's very hard to be like the CEO of a company in uh, corporate America. Right. And talk about the, the racism or whatever else you experienced on the come up. Right. Yep. You should be, should be thankful that you're there. Like, yep. why, why, why stir up all this kind of stuff? Um, and so they don't speak about it. The same thing in the Marine Corps. Like, if you're a black general, I don't think you're going to speak out, really. You know, you no. might have it in like a wave top story as if like it no longer exists. But you're not going to talk about your current experiences. You know, your experience of like how much the pressure, that weight on the back of your neck to perform simply because of your skin color. They can't speak like that. And so when I look at the people... This ain't about for first. If people feel some kind of way about this podcast, they need to understand this isn't about them. This is yep. about showing the young men and women of color who come from behind me that they can be themselves and that they can be accepted for themselves. Right? Like I'm yep. done with this whole like, oh, uh, you, to be a successful black man, you got to walk this way and talk this yep. way and shed your culture. Bullshit. Yep. I don't buy that. And I'm I'm fucking tired of it to be quite frank. And so I'm creating a new space where we can kind of show up and be ourselves. And uh, yeah. Mike believes it too. And so if people feel some kind of way, I'll tell you, don't listen to the podcast. Yeah. Better yet, make your own podcast. Yeah. And you're the one who made me realize uh, to think beyond my article. I think we touched on it a little bit. I started to understand it while we were in the middle of talking when you when you interviewed me, that it's more than like the basic school problem. It's more than just a rifle range, land, nav, and swimming. And it was our, during that conversation where it occurred to me, and I think I said it out loud, that it's this pressure to assimilate to the white culture, white male culture, because women feel it too. And if you're not white male, you have to break yourself down and then rebuild yourself in an unthreatening image, all while you're trying to learn these new skills in a highly competitive environment, right? And so that's just an unfair burden on women and minorities, particularly African-Americans, because I do think white culture racks and stacks minorities. And the most threatening at the very top is African-American men. They're the most threatening to white culture. And then at the bottom, you have Asians, I think, like me, with the least threatening. So the, I think African-Americans have, and African-American women maybe even more, have the hardest time in the Marine Corps because they have to completely suppress who they are, um, even down to their hair, right, um, for, for women. And it's just, it's not, so until the Marine Corps can accept everybody as who they are, lock, stock, and barrel, the way we do with white men, if they come from the country and speak with poor grammar, they can still make general. Why does why why doesn't any other culture why can't they come to the table as they are the way white people can? So yeah, yeah you you're the one who made me wake up to that realization. So thank you, Mike. And there's I think there's a misconception. It's not that I don't I still have deep love for the military, right? I am yeah. I mean I do so much stuff with veterans, right? I help out veterans all day, every day. Yeah. Um, have a deep love for the Marine Corps. I go back and I love the Marine Corps so much. I go back and forth about getting a tattoo. And yeah. I already have a Marine Corps tattoo, but I'm thinking about like, you remember when they redid the EGA? Yeah. Oh, modern EGA. Yeah, the, yeah, the modern one. I think about getting that tattoo. Um, but at the same time, it's like, like, that's how much, like, think about it. Like getting a tattoo on your body. Think about how much an organization have to mean to you to get that. Even oh, yeah. after all that stuff. And what people have to realize, this show isn't about bringing, being negative towards something. This Maybe show is about empowering you know how many calls I get from black officers, infantry officers in the fight right now? They have never in their life heard somebody express what they went through in the same. Yeah. It's like we all kind of have this shared experience. And they just remember when I was talking about um, 
in the first part of Always Faithful when I was talking about just feeling like something was off. I couldn't really explain it. And they describe it as that feeling like they just can't get ahead. It's like no matter what they do, they just can't get ahead. And when you hear these stories, man, it's like, dang, you know, there are people out here who identify with the the subject material. And it's just I mean, you've had people, sir, you got people coming to train with you because of that episode. Yeah, I got three because of you and allowing me to, to talk and put my email out there. I got three lieutenants coming to stay with me before they check into TBS. And we're going to do exactly what we said. Um, I work working on the hard skills like land nav and swimming and shooting, but also all the soft skills of the pressures they're going to face as African-Americans and as a one in one case, a white female. So I'm going to have guest lectures come on. You'll be one of them. And, and you're going to talk to them about what it's like. So they're armed before they go in about what to expect. So they're not just just caught completely ambushed when they walk in the door and as they're surrounded by Fox News and all this stuff. They need to go in armed. So that's what we'll do. Soft skills and hard skills. And it's it's like, man. I roll with a bunch of black infantry officers, right? Best friends, like really, really high performers, man. And it's both very hard for us to even consider recommending a talented black male. Yeah. We're not even getting the females trying to attempt, mm-hmm. but a black male going infantry. And we all agree, like, it's very hard for us to push somebody down that pathway. So it's like, yo, it's because it's a sense of like power. Like, we don't you think we should be the ones speaking for like mm-hmm. what we're sending people into? You know, yeah. and it's this perception that like, oh, we should be the biggest champions out there. Like you should be recruiting more people to go. To. But you don't know the hell we had to go through to yeah. get everything we got. And so that yeah. makes it very hard for me. So when you hear this story. Right. And I say like, hey, I wouldn't recommend a young black talented uh, Marine uh, or candidate go infantry. This is why. And as you hear my story, you'll, you'll get a better understanding of why that that's hard, because I think, again, people get so used to seeing the success. And when we get there and we arrive at that pinnacle. Some of us are just exhausted. Yeah. I know when by the time I had picked up, you know, captain and first lieutenant, whatever, and I kind of not left that behind, but was moving forward. It was yeah. draining to kind of have yeah. that go back there. So I just I kept it moving. Right. The young yeah. lieutenants, they they kind of knew about stuff that happened, but they didn't really know the details. And I never yeah. took the time to explain it. And so, like, that's really why. Yeah. And I'll say that, you know, and so to keep in the theme of that, we're not trying to bash the Marine Corps and we're trying to make the Marine Corps better. Diversity makes uh, organizations better, but it has to be diversity with inclusion, right? So if you look at the enlisted population, we are overrepresented by African-Americans. When you look at the officer population, we're underrepresented by almost half, right? So we're not inclusive at the, at the ranks that make policy, right? But when you think about what creativity is and being successful against a, a competitor, whether it's the business world or in combat, and our competitors now in combat, when we talk about China and Russia, have equal technolo- technological capabilities and as much industrial strength. Then how do you beat somebody that has the same level of tangible power? Well, you beat them with creativity, right? So what is creativity? It's it's taking things, breaking them down to the component parts, and then putting them together in new and unheard of ways. So when you look at a diverse population, you're taking all these component parts from diverse cultures, diverse backgrounds, diverse perspectives, and then putting them away and putting them together in new ways. And that is create, you can create something new, right? But if, if all the policymakers are white males and they all come from the same segment of the population, how many times can you break down what makes them them into new and unheard of ways into something new? Not, it's already been done. So diversity can only strengthen the rank, diversity plus inclusion can only strengthen the rank or so this, this is why we why we're complaining really is because we're trying to make the Marine Corps stronger. That's what the way I look at it. Sir, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even label us as complaining. 
I think we're yeah. just having dialogue and discussing because these conversations are going on, whether you know them or not. These True. conversations are going on. This is no new conversation. Yeah. I think it's just a sense of, you know, I don't know, man. It's weird. Like we speak and stuff starts happening. You know, people go see you and go get training. And, you know, so it's more of just speaking. It's a sense of it's a sense of um, driving action. Yeah. And one of the things I'll tell you all, like this ain't like I use the Marine Corps as an example. But the whole system, like what we got to look at as people for black, I'm talking about, let's talk black people specifically, mm -hmm. African-Americans, native mm -hmm. sons, and surges came on and we had a deep discussion about it. But there are certain inputs going into the system of this country for black people that lead mm -hmm. to mass incarceration, mm -hmm. low business ownership, low mm -hmm. representation in corporate America, low this, low that. And I look at it and I'm like, yo, I ain't going down that. There's something wrong with the way we're approaching this stuff. And yep. I refuse to do it anymore. So I kind of consider myself on the outside, right? Like, I, yep. I, even in business, entrepreneurship, I'm like, yo, man, I've talked to some very, very highly educated, well-articulated black and brown people who've applied for business loans from a bank. And you know what they yep. got? Nothing. Exactly. You know? So what do you think Tyrone or Jamal, who didn't go to college, has a chance at, right? I'm talking about like MBAs, West Point mm -hmm. grads, can't get a business loan. So why mm -hmm. are we talking about you know, business loans, access, listen, black people are not getting, you ain't getting a loan. It's That's not right. happening. So why are we teaching these business strategies and blah, blah, blah? No, we got to hustle. We got to bootstrap. We need business strategies that speak to us as a culture, as a people. That's the, that's where I'm at right now. I'm trying yeah. to win. And what I'm telling yeah. you is the way we we're currently doing things. We can't win in mass. Only yeah. one of us will make it through. And that's bothersome to me. So that's why I do this show is to yeah. articulate those thoughts. And the Marine Corps is just one of many examples. Right. Yes. I'm telling you the inputs that they're putting in to recruit and retain black infantry officers is poor. It yes. is innovative and it's not right. Right. You're yeah. still trying to do it through the old model. You know, yeah. I, I told you I got a, my best friend, one of my best friends, groomsman level, white male. I guarantee. You say, hey, get these 10 through IOC or whatever. Get these 10 through. He is going to figure it out. And he's not yep. naive enough to think he has all the answers. Yep. You know? And so that's why sometimes when I'm like, and we said it on the last show, sir, it's like, yo, man, you had two black infantry officers in 1980, two black infantry officers in 2015, two black infantry officers in 2020. Yeah. Like, it's a definition of insanity, right? Yeah. Doing, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. Yeah. To get through IOC, you need like 40 black officers to show up at IOC. That's right. Like at one time. Yeah. You know, you need that's, like, that's my theory. My latest theory is you need to flood the system, which is what I what, what my course I want to be able to do. Give people enough confidence and familiarity. And then they you flood the system with people that are successful at TBS, which is an infantry school, bottom line. Because And then uh, if they, they do well at it, then they'll like it. And if they like it, they might volunteer for it. Then we'll have people that want to be infantrymen and they'll do well. And, and, and we flood the system with so many African-Americans and women, too. Uh, that want to be infantrymen because they're infantry people because they they've been prepared and familiarized. Then then we'll have eventually we'll have somebody that makes it to the top. You they know, can start changing policy. You know what they would have to do to do that though, and why they won't? You got to have a warning order. Navy SEALs, you go to SEAL training. You know, two hundred show up. You know, fifteen graduate. You know, yep. tension rates, everything. You know exactly what you're getting yourself into. The landmine is there. You got to publish a warning order to say black infantry officers of mm -hmm. hundred that come in, two of you will make it. Positive, mm -hmm. You know, by the time you pick up Colonel or whatever else, y'all might not be there, you know, yeah. and like have those statistics front and center. And I've heard yeah. the response from other Marine officers who've been recruiting. They're like, we wouldn't be able to recruit anyone. That's if right. If anyone knew 
if anyone knew, you know, our track record in terms of cultivating black talent in the Marine Corps, let alone in the infantry, no one would sign. Who would go into that? But I'll tell you, the ones who looked at that and, you know, we'd be like, hey, where are these areas? Where are these discrepancies? Cool. Maybe you tie some self-awareness. How can we, you know, strengthen this area, cover down on this area? I argue that you would get a better candidate. I agree. You know, and you, you know, I know we'll roll into confessions eventually, but you're, you're, you made me do a confession last time. And it made me think a lot about how much it helped. And my paper was basically a confession as well, because I publicly declared where I stood and were in on, on things. And I think, you know, people ask the like the task force people looking at diversity wrinkle were ask, asking me, how do you get African-Americans to really talk so we can hear? And I said, well, you know, the Commandant's uh, ABC News interview about three weeks ago with Martha Raddatz, he said the, the Confederate flag was hijacked in 2016, which is part of the reason why he's it causes so much uh, divisiveness. And then he eventually outlawed it. But I, I would have asked him as a reporter, well, what did the Confederate flag mean in 2015 then? It wasn't right? hijacked. What are you that's talking a, about? That's the point, right? So no one's going to talk to him. So my nice suggestion then is he needs to confess in a way. For instance, if he put if he pulled all the fit reps he's ever written as an RS and reviewed as an RO, reviewing officer, and then racked him, stacked him by rank, first lieutenant, second lieutenants, captains, majors, and then let's see who he ranked number one, number two, number three by data, and then by race. I guarantee you there will be a pattern that pops, right? And then the commandant goes around on just like we did for uh, Marines United. The commandant went around and talked about Marines United and the sexism and, and sexual assault and harassment that was going on in the Marine Corps, he needs to do the same with African-Americans. Then on a big screen behind him, imagine this, where he has a row of first lieutenants and just by color of faces, no no names, just a color. So all second lieutenants, white, 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 then black, maybe a white guy beneath that. And just this pattern will develop in showing females too, of all his ranks. And then he confesses, look, here's my bias. Look what I've done to these people, right? I didn't even realize it. I'm biased. And then he confesses. And then we make every officer do that with their own data and see what they've done. That'd be very powerful. In 1975, a black officer who was at the Army War College did exactly that. He researched the data on fitness reports in the Army and to show bias. Um, and they bar- the Army buried it for two years until somebody pulled it out. Then they made the board, every promotion board, look at it and read it to understand the biases we have. And as a result of that, Colin Powell was promoted to general eventually. So that would be very powerful. The, 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 the power of confession is it, it allows people to trust you. And right now, no one trusts the leadership of the Marine Corps when it comes to race because we haven't put we haven't walked the walk. Yeah, not just the Marine Corps, corporate America. Yep. Corporate America is guilty of it. These nonprofit boards are guilty of it. You know, and I would take it a step further. Let us know how many the rankings of black officers at the basic school. How many yep. black officers fall in the bottom third collectively? Yep. Even deeper, black female officers. Did you imagine yep. publishing the data for a black female when you're trying to recruit her in the Marine Corps? Yeah. Yeah. I know. And then but we we don't we we have that data. It exists. Now make it make it, I'd say make public. it public. Make yes. it public. Show people the success right. rate of black female. I want to know how many don't make it. Yep. I want to know how many don't get out of TBS. I'm telling yep. you, there are people who I said this, they are in hiding right now. Because they they were destroyed, black and brown yeah. people literally destroyed. Okay, yeah. um, and again, it's a landmine. You know, it's, you know, and you'd like to think you know what you're getting yourself into, but the reality is that some people didn't. Like you don't know what you don't know. Just like entrepreneurship, like mm-hmm. you have this idea, but until you're in the cut, it's a whole different beast. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this too, sir. Um, a lot of people think they know us. Like you don't really know us. 
You know, you know where you know anything about me. You know, where my mom is, you know, you know? <laughs> come on. You know, my middle name. You don't know. I know. I know we like to say the friend term and stuff, but I, right. I have friends. Friends are the ones that you can have conversation with. I've been having conversations with them for years, yep. which is why regardless, I get on here and we talk about this stuff. Yo, the first ones to support anything I do. So when people are throwing out friends to your friends of color, right? Yep. Have you been over their house? Have you met that's, their mom? Have you met their family? Have you even had them over for dinner? Have you had them over for dinner? Yeah. You supported them? Mm-hmm. You know, really, like, like, let's get past this passive friend because friend yeah. means something different to me than it yeah. does to, to you all out there. And so real friends can have the hard conversations. But in order to have that, you have to be, you have to, uh, be in. And I think a lot of times right now with like, sir, your article, even this podcast, people on the outside looking in. It's like, oh, I, I know Mike, man. Let me, let me, uh, let me reach out to him. You know, it's like, no, man, listen, if you want to talk to me about this stuff, come on the podcast. Yeah. You know, I got other stuff I'm doing. I'm trying to uplift young men, women of color in Newark. That's my main guy. That's my main job. This is legacy work right here. Yeah. My kids pick this up and they're like, man, I wonder how Mike was, man. Or whenever I forget to cut. You know, I want them to have no, I don't want people to guess how I think or how I am. When I take yeah. a job, consulting gig, whatever, I go speak publicly. I want people to know exactly who they are and what they're getting. Yeah. And this platform allows me to do that. So that's why I, I do what I do. It's interesting that you said you've had friends call you because I haven't had actual friends call me. Real friends that I grew up with in the Marine Corps that I taught together with, that I led together with my white friends. Not, and some of them are generals now. Not a single one has contacted me about that paper. It's interesting. This is it. This is another reason why, sir. Um, Viola Davis, right? Very active. Yeah. Amy went in. Did she win an Oscar? I think she won an Oscar for the help. She hitting figures, wasn't it? It was the help. She the help. help. That's right. She won an Oscar for the help. She came out in Vanity Fair and said she regretted doing the movie. Yep. Because the character that she played was created in a way to make white white audience feel comfortable. That's right. You know, so people walk away from that movie feeling, you know, good and powerful and whatever. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily white people, just in like a feel-good movie. But the character was portrayed in a way that made white people feel comfortable. Very rarely do you have the black character that makes them feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know? And I kind of feel like with me being very socially driven, being able to reach out and touch young black and brown kids in inner city, and still having my thoughts and thinking the way I do, I think it makes people feel slightly uncomfortable. But it goes back to invisibility. You guys don't see us. You don't know us. You don't really know. You know, you think you know, but you don't. You know, take some time to get to know somebody. Spend some time. Conversate. Pick up the phone. Call them. Go see them. Not comment on Facebook and follow their social media and like, oh my God, I know. No. It doesn't work that way. Go see them. Go visit them. Yeah. Visit their grandma. Go eat at their house. Yeah. Then you can talk about maybe you know somebody, but then I'm like, let's just, if you haven't talked to people in years, man, don't even bother. That's right. But, uh, man, that's good. See, this is why I like having a sir on because we can just chop it up. But, uh, reason I had to bring him on, listen, we're going to get through Always Faithful. I'm committed to doing it and the sir is here to help me. And so let's keep this show rolling and we're going to go ahead and jump right into the first part, which we got to give our first, we got to give our confessions. All right. And just to let you know where I stand in terms of the Marine Corps and how much I want to be an infantry officer, for anybody that knows me, you know how much I love boxing. And if you knew me in 2010, you knew how much, you really knew how much I love boxing. And let me tell you, after the events of the first episode, if you haven't listened to part one of Always Faithful, episode 13, go back and listen to it. But I will tell you, when I got shopped off to the rifle range, okay, 
I called the Marine Corps boxing team to go spar just on a random Saturday. I called them up, just said, hey, I want to come spar. Um, what do you guys have sparring? I showed up. They're like, you're, you're like, you're an officer. It's like, can you box? I was like, I can hold my own a little bit. Got in there, bloodied the guy up, held my own. And even though I was shipped to the rifle range, the Marine Corps boxing coach, named guy named Gunny Aliman, my man, mm-hmm. like, hey, sir, we got to get you on the team. We got to get you on the team. You know, he's like, what are you, where are you, where are you, where are you at right now? I'm like, I'm at the rifle range. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, come on here. We'll sign papers right now. Blah, blah, blah. I turned it down. You know why? Because I want to be an infantry officer. Yeah. And as think about that, man, as low as I was, I had an opportunity to box for the Marine Corps and get paid to do it. Right. Yeah. And even after all the hell and stuff I went through, this would have been a perfect outlet for me to do it. And I didn't yeah. take it because I wanted to be an infantry officer. So you know what I did? I went out there and I sat on that rifle range for fucking two or three months, right? When I could have been boxing. Yeah. And everyone knows how much I love boxing, if you know me personally. So when I come in this stuff I'm talking about, right, that's how much I, I wanted to succeed. That's how much I wanted to be an infantry officer, that yeah. I turned down my life's passion for the opportunity to lead, yeah, be a part of the culture, even though the culture yeah. didn't really want me. Yep. That's my confession. What about yours, sir? I hate this part because I actually got to confess some bad stuff, right? So when I when I taught at the basic schools, the first time I worked with women in the Marine Corps and having women in, in my platoon maybe see them differently, especially because they could run faster than me, some of them, right? Back then when I was a little lighter. But I will confess that as a second lieutenant and young first lieutenant in the fleet and a woman would pass by you know, we, we'd all talk shit about them and, and talk about their, we'd objectify them. And, and, uh, I would, I didn't, not only did I not stop it, I know I, I, I participated. Right. And then, um, once I had women in my platoon at the basic school, I was so ashamed of that. And I, and I decided that though, you know, you talk to your people, you should never be able, you should never say anything that you can't say in front of your Marines period. So, so I, at that point, I stopped having like sex stories with my fellow male Marines and, and male uh, counterparts, my male fellow SPCs. It was my grade because if I couldn't tell a story in front of any of my Marines, then I'm not going to tell it. So that having that experience really, really changed me. And then having a daughter also has made me ashamed for the stuff I participated in. And then even later, didn't quite didn't stop. As I've gotten older, people have objectified women in front of me and I didn't stop it. Would I do it now? Yes. You know, but now I'm 51 and my daughter's 20. I wish I'd done it when I was a second lieutenant, but I just wasn't strong enough. In the words of Muhammad Ali, sir, a man who views the world as 50, a man who views the world at 50, the same like he did at 20, has wasted 30 years of his life. I know that quote. So social maturity. We've all grown. Mm -hmm. We've all been there. But it's what are you doing now? Yeah. What matters? Because you got to have a fixed mindset. You have a growth mindset. I have a growth mindset. So we're going back and exploring this stuff. Um, but thank you for coming on this platform and sharing that. Before we, before we roll, continue with Always Faithful, I got to give a shout out to our sponsors. First, I give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, we give a shout out to my brand, the one and only Ironbound Boxing, a fitness brand that utilizes the wellness benefits of boxing to transform communities, individuals, and corporate teams, helping them thrive and realize their fullest potential. Proceeds from our services fund free amateur boxing programs, 
entrepreneurial education and employment opportunities for inner city youth and young adults in Newark, New Jersey. Shout out to Dope Coffee and Ironbound Boxing, two badass brands led by black Marine officers uh, trying to change the world, trying to change the culture and uh, uplifting the community. Give a shout out to our super fans out there listening to this podcast while rocking an Ironbound Boxing hoodie, sipping some dope coffee with their minds open, ready to learn, ready to grow and uh, ready to support the cause. So shout out to all of you out there. All right, let's pick up the theme of today's show. Always Faithful, part two, the workup. Yeah. So when we, when we last, when we uh, we stopped the conversation last time, you had just been taken to the rifle range. And just to do a review, after you had graduated from the Naval Academy, you, you, you didn't want to, you wanted to separate yourself um, from the group and kind of make it on your own. So you, you decided to go to TBS earlier than all your classmates, but you did take some leave in between Naval Academy and checking into TBS. And it's just a weird story how you're out there on the beach, you know, and you pick up that football that the little kid was playing with and you play toss with that kid. And then the kid's father walks up and it turns out to be your future battalion commander who had not checked in yet to one uh, eight. Right. Yeah. So, so you'd met your future battalion commander. He wasn't, he wasn't going to show up on the scene anytime soon. But it's just weird how it came back to help you later. So, you know, you go to 1-8, you, you, you're given a test, an infantry test, skills test by your battalion commander, a former IOC instructor who I know personally, you know, and, and I, I would like to believe that he would have used that test to develop you um, once he sees the weaknesses in his lieutenants. But that doesn't seem like that's how he used the test because he told you all that you all failed. Um, then, you, But you didn't know what that meant. Then you met your platoon. Um, you, you introduced yourself as your new platoon commander. I remember that myself specifically when it happened to me. It was such a nerve-wracking, scary experience, right? To, to suddenly see Marines that you only theoretically thought about at the basic school now see, now they're in front of you and they all have individual names and individual faces and you're, you're in charge of them. So you went through that difficulty and, and honor, right? And then, then the next day or the day after that, you go to your hail and farewell, uh, which is an hour and a half away, uh, which is also a PME, right? But you knew you were going to get hailed there as a new uh, battalion lieutenant. So, you know, you get in a car with somebody else and you drive there to the PME and you, you go to the head real quick and you come out and there is the XO waiting for you um, and saying you're going to go to the rifle range as uh, and be a range officer out there. And, and I mean, I can't, I still, it gives me, it makes me want to cry when I even recounting it now just how stunned he must have felt. And they wouldn't even let you say goodbye to your, to your peers. And then you get escorted to the range like you're a criminal and you get escorted to check into the rifle range. And then you trust the system so much that you even told that officer, here's my, my address and my phone number uh, in case anybody wants to check on me. And you meant that sincerely and no one ever did. And you hit such a low and you're so isolated and no one checked on you. It's just terrible. And, and that's kind of where we left the story you being out on the range, um, you know, and then and then you said your your new battalion commander who you'd met on the beach that day in Hawaii asked about you when he showed up, and that's how you got pulled back into one eight and away from the range. Otherwise, you'd have been stuck there for six months. So it's three months now into your you know to your fleet tour. You're at you're at the range. Your new battalion commander checks in. He asks for you, and now you return to one eight. So I'd like to start the story there with, well, I mean, how did you feel after? I mean, it must have been, it was humiliating to be sent to the range like that with no explanation. And then you have to come back to the unit. How, 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 I mean, how did you do that? 
So you have a couple of events in your life that you really, really remember. And we talked about it. So it was like trauma, you know? So I remember, you know, my mom, when I found out my mom had a stroke, I grew up in a good parent home and I was at the Naval Academy, my mom had a stroke. And I just remember the world kind of shaking, you know, just kind of weird, this haziness where it wasn't there, right? I felt that experience. Second time I felt that was like when I went through my first breakup, you know, it's like that first love, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's like what is going on right now? It just feels weird. The third, the third time that happened was when that battalion XO told me I was going to the rifle range and he pulled me out the bathroom. I'm telling you, I walked out of the bathroom and he was there. And I was like, wait, what's going on right now? This, this can't be happening. Yeah. Um, and you talked, you know, I was, I think I was maybe I was in shock. I don't know, but it just was like one of those traumatic events. But I will tell you, man, it's like uh, even in the midst of this pandemic, right? People say like yo, Mike, how is it you're able to do so much and whatever? I'm like, sir, man, you ain't got to worry about me. I've been through stuff. I've been alone, you know? Yeah. That was one of those times of like a low. It's not the lowest. Afghanistan will probably be the lowest. But uh, that was one of those times. Um, but I don't know, man. I'm just built different. I can't explain it. Like, it was low and it sucked, but it's just like, what do you do? You know, and I, I'll be, I won't lie to y'all, man. Um, when I was... I chose to live by myself, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, coming from the academy and freaking sleeping in a room with eight dudes at IOC, mm-hmm. I was just like, man, I kind of need my own space, my own time. But to be out there in that apartment, in that island yep. by myself, yep. with those thoughts, man. Works eight miles to the grocery store. Miserable. Yeah, to stop and not let your mind go in a dark place. Yeah. You know, um, it was like a mental battle, you know, just laying out there every night and just trying not to, because it sucked. Because when I checked in, I had to get up at like, that happened. They were like, yeah, check in tomorrow at four o'clock yeah. in the morning. That's right. No, it, was like, it, just, it, just, it was real. There's no way around it, but it just sucked it up. Um, but I will tell you this. I stayed in shape. And that's one thing I'm proud of myself for, because even in the lows, I was running. I don't know, man. I was just entertaining myself, just doing my best, you know, trying to make the most of it. Um, I met some mentors out there that were just knew something was off. They're like, why is there a black second lieutenant infantry officer? You know, yeah. um, pull me under his wing and kind of mentor me. It's like in life, you have these guides, right? Yeah. That are there that help to nudge you. That's why I don't like the term self-made. Nobody's self-made. There's always someone there. But I had people that just, you know, they knew something was off and they tried to nudge me and encourage me the best I could. But when I got back to uh, 1-8, man, and I found out I was going to platoon, I walked to my apartment. I swear to God, I fell to my knees and I kissed the ground because I was so fucking thankful I was getting a platoon. You know, that's how it, that's how I felt. That's the emotion. That speaks, that speaks volumes about your personality though. Cause I, I'm the type of guy that get resents, resents, resents and needs, and I'm very self-centered and, and I need like uh, vindication all the time. And I, I don't know if it's a pro- factor of my privilege, the way I grew up, but man, if I had been humiliated like that, it'd be very, very hard for me to have the grace that you had. And, and if the number one, immediately be thankful I, that's that speaks so much about you, Mike. I think for me, it was just a sense of like, I saw the dream going away and I thought it would never happen. And then when I found out that I was, because I felt like, like you got to understand, the Naval Academy guy, man, for us, going Marine Corps, getting our first choice, man, I felt like an NFL number mm-hmm. one draft. Mm-hmm. That's how it felt like, right? I felt like I was living a dream and then have that taken away the way it was. Yeah. You know, I saw, I, lo- I thought I lost it. And then to get an opportunity to do it again, man, I was just so I was just so thankful. And it just was like, I didn't let it break me. I almost broke me, but I didn't let it break me. Yeah, you're, you're tough. You're tough. But 
So I mean, like, what was the first day like? You walk back in, everybody knows you've been at the range. You're you're about to work up to go to Afghanistan. You got a, a brand new battalion commander that sought you out. I mean, did you speak to him? I did. Um, you know, he called me in his office. I told you on the last episode of uh, the first episode, I was faithful. He called me in his office, said, what happened to you shouldn't have happened to you. Yeah. And I just remember my tears, bloodshot and red and, you know, tears come. I'm a grown man. I'm like 23 at this point, you know, but just the anger and the rage. Um, but he's like, he gave me an IOC company commander, you know, they're going to break me in, boy. Uh, but I mean, in his, in his in his defense, though, he probably thought it was the right thing to do. You know, I mean, sometimes Marine Corps personalities just don't match, but yeah. match up my company commander. And uh, I think I was told, like, I would start the next day. And just like in infantry fashion, I met my platoon in the fucking parking lot <laughs> right before we stepped off on like a, a, a field op, you know, yeah. like a weekend op. And uh, like I checked in. Uh, I didn't have a platoon sergeant. It was like some Lance Corporal. Um, wow. So you were still in the rebuilding phase. Yeah, they, because my unit had just got back from Afghanistan. Right. So all the lieutenants checked in, you know, as they were coming back from leave, from deployment leave. Right. So, you know, we had all those experiences like, are the Marines going to salute us or what? You know, and they see a bunch yeah. of boots walking up. Of course, they didn't salute. They just walked by. Yeah. Um, so I was in around that time. And so, um, you know, they... That was when I got tested. I got tested right as they were coming off a of leave. And so I went away. And so when I came back, it was like, you know, battalions changing, people are at school, still waiting on people. So I got briefed by my platoon, my met my company commander, told me my platoon sergeant was a Lance Corporal for now. And uh, that was that. We were going off to the field. And so met my platoon in the uh, parking lot as we waiting outside the armory. And it's funny because you think it's like, you know, when you're trying to be an officer, especially you go to Naval Academy, you hear all these speeches about what are you going to say to your yeah. first platoon? That already yeah. did it once yeah. right, before they shipped me to the range. But yeah. now here was my time. And they're just like sitting in the parking lot, smoking cigarettes. Like they don't, you know, Marines are kind of, they see lieutenants left and right. Like they didn't yeah. mean anything. But to me, it was just like, what's going on, guys? I was just like, just weird. So do you, so you, you had no sergeants then? It was just all Lance Corbels and below? Yeah. When I first checked in, there was no sergeants, but it was catching up with some, some classmates from TBS. You know, the guys we had checked in, they already had their platoon, had been training them for like three months. And now it was kind of like the new guy. And if you're an infantry, infantry officers know, like you get thrown in the mix real quick. Yeah. You show up day one. They're like, all right, we need accountability. I'm like, I don't even yeah. know who these Marines are. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you just kind of get thrown in the mix. And so I met my platoon and we stepped off for a hike. And it was fucking <laughs> heinous hike. Marines falling out left and right. And I'm just like around. I'm like, yo, this is different than IOC. Like, you're the instructors now. It's like being a platoon commander is like, um, there's just no oversight, really, when you think well, about it. It's like they are very independent. And that was a weird, I remember that feeling. That was weird. Like, no more instructors, no more. It's just kind of like us. Marines mm -hmm. falling out. Car man, get the car man. Out. <laughs> I'm like, no, oh, man, it's just crazy. But did you, did you, so did you feel like you, fit in? Did your platoon commander, your fellow platoon commanders, your peers accept you? Or did you feel like an outsider? And if you felt like an outsider, how long did that last? Um, early, initially, initially when I checked in, um, I mean, it was all, it seemed like all love, right? Like it's still early dynamics, right? Hey, what's up, man? Glad you're here. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, but man, I just remember the first lieutenants being kind of dicks too, just to be honest. Yeah. And they had come back from Afghanistan. And so they was like that crowd, you know, at the deployment. And yeah. all our first lieutenants, we had like one black first lieutenant, but, um, you know, it was just, it was, uh, it felt like frat boy culture almost. Like yeah. I kind of got back and felt like I had to like pledge a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and you're kind of going through that process, but I still didn't necessarily feel in because I was embarrassed about what happened. 
So yeah. I knew everyone would knew I was like at the rifle range, and now I was like the stigma. Yeah, I kind of you kind of got that that taint taintness to yeah. you. Um, yeah. And so I was like really uncomfortable around that. And so especially when like you know after you check in, you get meet the LPOP right, and all that kind of stuff, and they're like, yeah, we're gonna go to this bar or whatever, and you're gonna hang out. But I didn't necessarily feel like the most comfortable. Honestly, I was felt ashamed. Right. Yeah. I still feel like you know you're just trying to like trying to play it like it's cool, but you know like deep down that you're kind of you know you just I don't know man I'm just embarrassed. You know, but I wonder how much of that is real and how much of it is in our head. I know your experience. Yeah, it was tough. It would be humiliating to anybody. But I'll tell you, I felt the same. I felt like I was a fraud as a second lieutenant. I mean, I didn't study very hard at IOC. I did okay because I was physically tough and strong and all that, but. I just didn't. When I met my platoon, I didn't. I didn't really know what it is. I mean, it was the first time they be being a leader, and I was like, "Shit, I don't know what I'm doing." I have to go to teach these guys how to patrol. I don't even know how to patrol, so I felt like I was faking it a long time until I actually came out of TBS as an instructor. That I actually knew my trade, but I, I, that feeling of being a fraud—I think everybody—it's just like being a kid. Yeah. Right in high school and college, it's the same thing. I don't want to say I don't want to say like I felt like a fraud in front of the Marines because like I was very trained for that, but I just meant more like the peer dynamics. You know, in terms yeah, of my man, yeah. like you, you can't, you got to kind of fake it. Like you are not, you're, you're more confident than you feel. I think yeah. all leaders got to, got to do that. But I mean, eventually I, my, my technical cap- capability matched my confidence. But yeah. at first, my first tour in the Marine Corps, uh, until I was a first lieutenant, I, I, I faked it more than I actually made it, I think. Yeah. No, but I think that's, yeah, I probably, and, and, you know, those guys, again, it's all relative, right? Like, I'm just talking about my experience, my personality. Like, some of those guys might have not ever thought about that, right? Like, oh, yeah, man, we knew Mike. Mike was cool or whatever. But to me, I still, like, when I got back, like, that's what I was experiencing. But there's one thing I want to talk about, too, sir. And, uh, you know, even just the black officers, right? And uh, I've talked on this show before about, like, what racism kind of does to us. Yes. Uh, but not what we do to each other. Yes. And that was a weird dynamic when I checked in because I was looking back like I'm trying to go in my head like I'm pretty sure when I checked back into one eight, there were like five black infantry officers Four. it was four black infantry officers. So I don't know if the time was like, yo, we need to pump up one eight or something. But like even with all the black officers, like we never talked like that. You know, we yeah. never it wasn't like I came back like stab me your back. Come on, man. Let's go. Hey, yeah. hey, brothers, <laughs> you know, solid dad brothers. We go into the house. Let's talk to Mike. You know, because you got the captain, you got the first. It's, yeah. But we're like, there was none of that, you know. But you remember you when you're in your confession the last time we talked, you said you yourself had done that, too. And I yeah, did the I same the to I a fellow Asian officer. Yeah, there, I feel like there was this stigma. Oh, he hangs out with all the black guys or the black guy, mm-hmm. you know, and it's embarrassing. But like, I didn't want to be seen as a black. Like, I literally did not want to be seen as a black officer. Uh, me, too. I, I didn't want to be seen as Asian. I want to be seen as an infantry officer. That's what yeah. I wanted. You yeah. know? And I thought that by not identifying as a black officer, I wouldn't run up against all the stuff that all the other black officers had told me about. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm willing to bet maybe the other people, but other people, maybe they're just busy with life and family. But for, for me, it was that like I just was like, OK, I got to be accepted. So I got to go hang out at the the fucking what's the, the what do you call it? The dive bars playing country music. And you got to go yeah. here and you got to go to meet up and this LPOP stuff yeah. that they accept you. Even though you would never in your life hang out there, yeah. You know? um, yeah. But I thought that's what I had to do to be kind of accepted. And so coming back into battalion, getting around the social dynamics. Um, God, 
I know exactly what you're saying. You know how many Irish bars I've been to, which I'd never walk into now. Yeah. But I was the only brown person in the bar, but I was trying to fit in with my 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 peers. Right. But it was I crazy totally for us to have these black officers there. I think there was like a black Intel guy. Like the mm-hmm. what's the what's the what's the bill for Intel? S2. Yeah, we had like a black S2, three black lieutenants, uh, one being my frat brother, um, who I didn't have the best job of looking after. You know, I should have been defending him when I was in the room and people were going in. But it's just yeah. like, you don't you already got your own stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, I don't need any more. I don't need any more negative attention. Yeah. Uh, and then we had another black captain kind of check in. But like, man, I think about, damn, man, if I would have came back, I wish somebody would like, I just needed some love, man. <laughs> I just needed some love. Like, oh, we got this, brother. You good? Hey, this is yeah. what we're going to do. Um, yeah. Now, I would like my my old lieutenants probably wouldn't say I was, but. I would like to believe I used to have Charlie one eight as a captain that I would have welcomed you with love and made you feel part of the family. Maybe, you know, the hindsight's, you know, I'm probably remembering things different than really happened. You could probably interview old lieutenants and say, it wasn't like that, but did you, did you ever get that sense of belonging from your leader? I think he tried. I think he really did try, but I think the personality profiles of like a white captain, Infantry, like you got, you got to understand. It's just like it was. Uh, here's the best way I describe it. Right, initially, I could never understood why we could never get along. What was different about us? I could just never see the world in his light, you know. And mm-hmm. it, it's like a dress, right? If we mean you go out, right? I got on like a polo shirt or something, or like mm-hmm. a t-shirt, mm-hmm. you know, some jeans, a nice pair of kicks. They got on like the button down, mm-hmm. tied, you mm-hmm. know, uh, pulled up to their nipples. Yeah. 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 <laughs> shorts above the knees, you know yeah. what I mean? Sandals yeah. with the strapped, you know? Oh, yeah. Picture I had all image, that. Right? Picture that image mm-hmm. and I picture me. Yeah. And it's just like two different things. And I think I think he tried, but again, it goes this sense of like, I don't know, man. I think sometimes when people try to get comfortable with black people, they not like force themselves, but it's almost this sense of like, um, how do I describe it? It's like, you know, you can just tell when someone is comfortable around black people. Mm-hmm. They don't have to tell you that like they know black people. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, what's the, like my man Kilo, who I interviewed for the show. The minute I saw him, I could just, oh, what's up, man? What's up? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but for the company commander, I think it was just like, just awkward. He was just kind of awkward. Um, but he meant, I think he did mean well, to be honest. Um, and he brought me in and he just, he was an IOC instructor. You know, they just, <laughs> you know, yeah. tell you what to do, keep it moving. But I definitely, I think he definitely took pride in like, I mean, he was fired up by having a company. You know how it is. Like, I'm fired yeah. up by having my platoon. He's fired up by having his company. Um, but, uh, I mean, initially I thought I was kind of good, right. I yeah. thought like, okay, I can, you know, it's be a good relationship, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. As we spent more and more time with each other. I think the wheels kind of started to fall off a little bit. How, like in what way? Just in a sense of like, and I think a lot of infantry officers can attest to this is like, when you come into Marine Corps, when you go through IOC, you assume that like the, 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 the instructors are like fucking know everything. You know, yeah. that like their word is God. You yeah. know what I mean? It's golden. Yeah. But then once you become on the other side of it, you realize they're just making a decision based on the information that they have. You That's know? right. And at any point, even if you're a platoon commander, you're going to be faced with tactical challenges and you're going to solve them in your way. Right. Now yeah. you have the doctrine, you have all that kind of stuff that you've been trained with. But at the end of the day, it's your decision. And I might yeah. coordinate attack in a different way than somebody else. You know, and so yeah. what ended up happening was like the way I think when I, I don't know, man, like, uh, like I just go back to self-awareness. Like I'm very simple. 
I just try to explain things simple. Like I break it down. Like I'm not going to go in super detail. I'm like, hey, this is what we need to know. This is what we need to do. So I have to simplify things for myself. But I started to notice, at least in my opinion, that he was just very like, very, you know, the tactical, real yeah. tactical infantry officers, they get down in the dirt with their, you know, their compasses and get the right yeah. azimuths. You know what I mean? They're like really, really into it. And um, I didn't always agree with his decisions tactically. Yeah. And I started to be like, man, are we overthinking this? Is this like overcomplicated or whatever? And so I would kind of make a decision and it would cause friction. Yeah. Did, did you know him well? Like, so to me, the, the definition of an intent Intent, commander's intent is not paragraph three alpha of a operations order, right? Which is limited in time and duration. Real intent is knowing your boss the way you would know your own parents, because we know what our mom and dad would want us to do in a given situation or what they would do in a given situation, right? So to me, a good leader is able to compress what would take us 10 years of life with our parents into like six months before you deploy, which means you they have to be completely as possible, I mean, transparent and genuine and familiar and really, really teach, teach you. So you start to know, understand how they think. Now you may not always agree with their decisions, but you would know in a situation what your company commander would want you to do. That's how you flatten the time cycle, right? Yeah. Decision cycle. So th there's a lot of, in that question. So one, I mean, did he, did he, was he that way to you? He sounds like he's more of a automaton mechanical guy at least what I'm picking up. But the other hand too, if you can't be yourself because of your race, right. Then how can you ever really know each other? Then how can you ever have that implicit communication, which our way of fighting um, causes us to wants us to strive for. I'll, all right. I'll tell you this. I was, I think as a young Lieutenant, especially up against coming in, I think I was intimidated by him. You know, I think I like, I, I let me, let me take it back to like the Naval Academy, right? You know, you go to, I go to the Naval Academy and it was the first time in my life I ever saw a student challenge a professor. Yeah. You know, like this professor's got like a PhD, been teaching at the academy for 20 years. He put yeah. up on, on the board. You know, yeah. I'm assuming it's right. Then you got this, this midshipman who's like, hey, uh, sir, that's wrong. I'm, I had never seen somebody get challenged like that. Mm -hmm. You know, and correct a professor. This is like a midshipman. And the midshipman was right. So, you know, you come in the Marine Corps and all these guys, I told that sir to go fuck himself. You know, I told yeah. him, I never could believe that. I'm like, bullshit. You know, you told a captain to go fuck himself, really? You know, but it comes from a competency. See, you can get away with that stuff if you're a high performer and you're really competent, you know? And you're white or not black. And yeah, I, I would assume, you know? Yep. I'm telling you. Because you can push back. You're like, no, sir, yep. you're wrong. And the reason I can say that now is because after having, that was my first company commander at the time. After having three company commanders, you know, I had another platoon and weapons platoon. The difference between him and another company commander was, I remember when I got my second company commander and the first time he asked me like what I thought, I was like blown away. Yeah. And I was like, hey, Mike, what would you do? I was like, really? I like, <laughs> you know? I like that guy. My first company commander was like, yo, we're going with packs. You know, it's like 120 degrees outside. We're humping, you yeah. know, like don't even like don't even go to the server. He's not going to let us drop packs. You know what I mean? He's not yeah. going to let us de-kit, right? But my second company commander, we were like, sir, if we do this, Marines are going to die. <laughs> like, like straight up. And he's like, all right. You know, and that was just mind blowing for me. So that's like contrasting the first one. I think the first yep. one was like, yo, man, it's like his way, you know? And it yep. was like doctrine. It was just whatever. And because he was, uh, he was a prior enlisted too. So he mm -hmm. worked his way up. There's some stereotypes there. Sorry, so you, either the best or the worst. Like, I, I mean, mm -hmm. I just seen lieutenants get eaten up trying to go up against them. 
Yeah. It's like you already knew. So kind of you kind of knew what he was going to do, but he was just relentless. Did you learn from him? <sighs> I learned what not to do, I think. Okay. You know, and your son, he commander, I think he tried. He tried. Yeah. I think in his way, in his way of teaching and stuff, he tried, but he wasn't what I needed, I think. And the best way, again, we're going to talk about this. And when I get my second company commander, but my second company commander, man, I mean, he was the one that, uh, you know, went after Afghanistan, man. And uh, he was just like perfect for me. I can't describe it, but just everything, you know, supervise, inspect what you inspect, you know, but in a loving kind of like it was okay to fail. Yeah. I felt comfortable failing in front of them. The first one, I didn't feel comfortable failing in front of. You know? That's so interesting because I'm, you know, what I do for my real life, my real job, is a training education study, and we're ta- we're looking at training the standard. But our the infantry community, and I'm I am one, is is the worst about t- failure. So the pilots, they they intentionally fail. Fail is good because that's how you grow, right? The best skaters, they don't become great figure skaters because they never fall. They're the best skaters because they fall all the time in practice by stretching themselves, right? But in the infantry community, once we don't really get tested officially, and it's so rare that you get evaluated that when you do get evaluated tactically, it's it becomes such this mountain that you there's no way we'll fail you. So it becomes an assessment, and everything's kind of hush hush. So then we evaluate people on stuff that really doesn't matter, like how fast can you run or how good do you look in uniform. It's all shit that doesn't matter, truly. Because and and as a result, I think the Marine Infantry is very stuck um, or unable to grow because we just don't ever want to get tested and, and we are so f- afraid of failure. Yeah. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why so many officers don't listen either. We just don't want to know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story. This is how bad I didn't want to fail, right? Because again, the stigma of uh, mm-hmm. the stigma of everything, right? Like I just I yeah. didn't want to ruin this opportunity. So I was training my Marines. We called it Fight Club. The first rule about Fight Club, don't talk about Fight Club. Right. It wasn't boxing. It was just right. me. Like, I I ran these Marines, uh, my squad leaders, right? I did some morning training with them. And it was just nothing. It was like a mini, like, uh, what's the course you do at IOC? Endurance course? What's the one? The E course? Mm-hmm. Or the O course? No, the OPOP or whatever it was. I forgot what it was called. You know, when you first check in IOC, they make you do this test. And it's like all the lieutenants are scared about it because everybody has this perception. Oh, the endurance test? Huh? Yeah. Is it the endurance test? Yeah, yeah. something, right? So mm-hmm. I made, you know, we make our little stations and stuff Station. for my squad leaders, right? Mm-hmm. We were coming back late, all right? And we weren't coming back late. Let me tell you this. We finished up in time, but I knew there was like a, a meeting at like eight o'clock or seven o'clock yeah. or something. And I'd already trained my Marines, all right? And uh, I was like, I got enough time to shower or whatever. But I go to get my stuff to shower and I lock my keys in my car. Yeah. Right. So I'm like fucking muddy, all whatever. I took a Kevlar and I broke the window in my car to get in my car so I wouldn't miss the meeting. <laughs> like that's how I mean it's that is crazy, right? But like that's how afraid I was of failure. I you know I'm laughing because I did the exactly the same thing. It's set checking checking in day as a second lieutenant and all the Marines are watching you and they'd all come back from Desert Storm. So I had, you know, I had one national defense ribbon. They all came back stacked and I'm, I'm feeling like a fraud already because they're combat vets. I'm not. And after, and I'm in my alphas. And after I, ch- after I got that checking in, I go out to my car and I'd lock my keys in the car, just like you. And guess what I did? I've picked up a rock and smashed my window out and yeah, drove away. Crazy, right? It's like, yeah. common, it, it's not, it makes no sense. So all you out there who want to know why I had a busted window is because I didn't, yeah. didn't want to miss the meeting. It's crazy. Yeah. Like I didn't have enough balls. Walk, Hey sir, I locked my keys in my, 
It's just, you know, yeah. when you're a lieutenant, you feel like a damn, I don't know, like a player. I can't believe we both did the same thing. Yeah, I broke the cart, you know? People <laughs> never understand. I didn't even bother explaining them. But to yeah. understand of like, yo, I did not want to be late to a meeting, right? Yeah. I broke the keys of my car because I didn't want my company commander being like, yeah. Lieutenant Stedman, what the fuck? Yeah. You know? Oh, that kills me. But the, so how, what was your relationship with your family like? Well, you you know, you based on your story about your mom and her stroke, you were close to her or close to her. I mean, how, how did you how did you explain your situation I with didn't. the rifle range and stuff? I didn't. I ate it. I didn't tell you. So, so now you're living a double life, though. Yes. And it's hard because, it, and I think, I think it goes back to the, and it goes back to even like the boxing team and everything. It's like, you know, you're this successful guy, right? You graduate the Naval Academy. Everybody's so proud of you. Mm-hmm. you know, and you're fucking team struggle bus. Mm-hmm. You know, just trying to keep your head above water. And I'll tell you, man, when it hit me, when I was in the field at like TBS and IOC, especially in the winter, you know, and I'm out there just fucking, dude, I was mad at the life, mad at world, mad at the, yeah. I was mad at life and I was mad at the world because for me, it was like, and I don't, I fuck it, man. I don't talk about it a lot. My mom had that stroke when I was at the academy and mm-hmm. a lot of my classmates didn't know about it, but it almost uh, broke me because um, she's been bedridden ever since. She's still in a nursing home. Wow. And uh, the same year I won my first national championship was the same year my mom had that stroke. Yeah. Um, and so that's just always kind of been a part of my life. It's just always yeah. kind of there. And I think when I was at IOC and TBS and I was struggling in the field, I would yeah. like, have these thoughts to myself of like, fuck, man, like I don't have a dad. I, my mom is sick. I'm out here fucking freezing my ass off. You know, it's like I just felt so fucking mad at the world. And nobody loves you at IOC. That's the thing. I remember, you know, I lost feeling in my feet yeah. <laughs> from the winter. And I was just like, yo, man, nobody loves you. You know, and you just internalizing it. Um, yeah, I obviously sucks. And your peers are like, yo, who the fuck is Stedman? <laughs> and so I'm just battling all this just mental mess, you know, myself. Um, but I never, and that's what, you know, even after I answered that first episode, people called me. They're like, why? Did, you had friends. You should have called us, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just like, I was so, I don't know. It's like, how do you explain? And I'm, I have a cousin that went to the academy. Mm-hmm. but he's like way old. He went to the cabin like the eighties. Right. Mm-hmm. And he uh, is a Navy guy. But like, dude, I come from like, when I wanted to go to military, like people were like, Stephen, what the hell are you talking about? You know, yeah. I was in high school in like, Oh five, I go to high school. Five. We're still in Iraq. People getting blown up. Like, what the fuck yeah. are you going Marines? Yeah. Are you trying to go to the military. So like, I didn't really have anybody in my community. I could relate to like yeah. being an infantry officer was so fucking far out of left field. Yeah. Boxing was so far out of left field. You know, I didn't even have anybody to talk to about boxing. I called my frat brothers, you know? So, um, no, man, I just, it kind of, and it, it transformed itself into what became the Ronin, which we're going to talk about. Yeah. This sense of just, you know, I got a tattoo on me. It says everything you need is already within. And I just kind of keep to myself. And so, you know, I think people see me in my personality. They think I'm just like extrovert, but deep down, I'm really this like introvert. Yeah. Well, have you ever reconcile that with your mom as she know um i mean she's in a nursing home still and so you know once you had that stroke so she's like Mm -hmm. paralyzed on the left side of her body um and so you know not really talking you know because like it's like when your family's dealing with so much stuff the last thing you bring your mess to them yeah and uh to be quite frank i come from a family of like a lot of females 
Yeah. No, and so like the male, the strong figure, and like I didn't, I didn't want them worrying about me. I didn't want them worrying about yeah. me at the Naval Academy. And I sure as hell didn't want them worrying about me in the Marine Corps because they already knew I was about to go to Afghanistan at yeah. that point. And so I just kind of internalized everything myself. That's that's hard for me to to imagine because you know I, I got I got family I could talk to, so it's just hard for me to to conceive of being that. I'm sure they like, I'm sure they wanted me to talk to them. I'm sure they wanted me, but it's just like I just didn't know how. No, I understand why you didn't, but that's just tough. That's just tough. So you had the same company commander for the entire workup. I did. Yeah. And then, but we will talk about Afghanistan later. But did your company commander change in the point during deployment? He did not. Okay. No, I had the same one. But you moved around in platoons within the same. So how, you had weapons platoon in the same company. No, this is later. So this okay. uh, this hurt. After the, yeah, after deployment. So okay. Um, yeah, but for uh, I was with my company commander and my company and my platoon through a seven month workup. I think I checked yeah. in June because we originally checked in. in um, I forgot when we checked in. It was like May or something. Yeah. And you know I got shipped to the rifle range and I came back like at the end of June, July, something around there. And then we deployed in January of the following year, January, 2012. Yeah. So I had, it's like your team, man. You know what I mean? I had my platoon I trained up with, I had my company commander and uh, yeah, I was with them for the duration. But when you deployed, did you get, by that time, did you have a staff sergeant, platoon sergeant? I did, man. I had, two, I had two platoon sergeants. So I, I'll tell you this, right? And this is the dynamics of black officers, right? Mm-hmm. I checked in when I finally got my platoons, I had like a Lance Corporal Mm-hmm. Lance Corbin for like a month, right? So yeah. it's a mess, right? Especially that first yeah. hump. I'm out there, man. Marines falling out, dude. This hump, it was like hiking in a sauna. Yeah, straight up. Marines falling out left and right. Step, we need accountability. I don't know where someone's like, what is going on? So why? Yeah. But you like, you see how we get excited talk about it because yeah. like, yeah. it's an infantry thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. So when I finally got my platoon sergeant, man, he was a uh, dude. This dude was from Florida, man. He was a salt dog. He was like a sniper. Probably yeah. a sniper, but he was like older, so he like was a sniper from like the '90s. Got out, then got back in. He was yeah. part of a motorcycle gang down in North yeah. Carolina. Dude, what do you want to get back in the war? Confederate flag tattoo. Oh, he was in the office, right? Mm-hmm. Confederate flag tattoo and Wiley Coyote. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, I will tell you, man. His name, uh, I he was a good dude, man. You know, he was a good dude, but he was little. He was a little intense. Um, not at me, just in terms of his 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 thinking, you know, mm-hmm. because what what ended up letting him what ended up him not making what the company commander removed him from being my platoon commander because we were doing a training op. And one of the Marines was like, sir, what if you find an enemy combatant on the ground? Gun staff sergeant. He's like, you fucking shoot him or something yeah. like that. And yeah. the bro- it's just like it kind of came to a head because he would bounce. He would go against the company commander. too. Yeah, I couldn't picture that. You know, they didn't get along at all. Right. Yeah. So now I got this platoon sergeant that the company commanders would get along with. Yeah. Um, and you cut the middle. Me in third platoon. Um, and he was just real protective of the platoon, too. You know, yeah. Like, don't fucking listen to them. Don't do that. And I'm like a young lieutenant, so I didn't you know, know any better. Um, yeah. At the time, I'll tell you, it's like as I got older, I come to realize like he was probably not the best platoon sergeant for me for like a young one because mm-hmm. I was doing shit I probably shouldn't have had to do. You know, mm-hmm. sergeant, hey, sir, take care of this. You know, you just kind of brief them. They they take care of everything else. But with him, I think he needed a little supervision. Probably was a little bit disgruntled, you know? Um, yeah. But I will tell you, man, um, remember I made that comment about me not knowing how to camp? I yeah. got my platoon sergeant, man. He showed him how to build a hooch and everything. Yeah. 
I just I told him, you know, I was like, because yeah. it's one thing to do it when you got all the time in the world, but just like, I yeah. like, then you just hump like 15 miles. Now you got to throw up a hooch in the snow yeah. in the fucking five seconds. Yeah. You know? so <laughs> that was good. It felt like he took me under his wing a bit. Like, I felt like I could be a little vulnerable with him because you spend a yeah. lot of time out. You know, with your platoon sergeants and whatnot. Um, and the platoon really loved him to the point it was almost like a like uh I don't know, man. They were just very loyal to him. It's like a almost cult of personality. Yeah. He was like yeah. one of those kind of guys. I think it's a motorcycle gang. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because my first platoon sergeant was just he was a biker. Um, we don't talk anymore because of politics. He's he's far, far right, but boy, he raised me well in terms of giving me credit for, for good ideas that he came up with, making sure I never embarrassed myself. Um, and I, I'd say all good officers had a good first platoon sergeant. Yeah, he did. A lot had, of bad ones didn't. And I don't mm-hmm. think he was a bad platoon sergeant. I just thinking in terms of a good platoon sergeant for me. Right? For matching with you. Yeah. Me. Yeah. And he had my back, man. He had my back. That's why I can say, again, like all the stuff, um, you know, I was struggling with, like my little, he could probably tell, like, yo, what's up, little tenant, you know, kind of, you know, your little quirkiness, but mm-hmm. he never crucified me for it, man. And he taught me and uh, made me feel comfortable. My second platoon sergeant, boy, man, I felt like he had something against me. Well, okay, where where was that in relation to deployment? Was it right before? Did you switch out right before? Uh, yeah, the right worst before. Time? ITX. That's terrible. Right before, I, it was like an ITX. That's before like a. Uh, that's setting you up for failure almost. Uh, to have that ma- massive transition of personality right before you deploy. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was right before. Cause see, like another thing too is like you don't know this, right? Like I'm like, oh, infantry. Everybody thinks of a six month deployment, whatever. Yeah, when you're an infantry officer, bro, you're in and out of the field every other week. Yeah. You know, so it's like, yo, man, you're in the field all the time. You fuck, fuck, yeah. live in the field. And yeah. uh, yeah, man, I uh, that incident happened. I think the company commander was kind of watching him. He was watching me. He was watching third platoon. You know, and then I guess he was kind of looking for a reason. Mm-hmm. No, and then I guess he was next. Like he didn't give a fuck. Like platoon sergeant, to be quite frank, he didn't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he made that comment in front of the company commander, and the company commander was like, "You gotta go." Yeah. And he put this other guy in, and so we de- we deployed. And uh, um, and there's uh, <laughs> this stuff is deep, man. I'll tell you as we continue with this story. But um, yeah, my new platoon sergeant um came on board um at you know right before ITX, and then I got him. And uh, yeah, just trying to get used to him too. Dude, so now that you're more seasoned, when he came in, you know, like when when I first my first two started, I was almost kind of following him around, and he led me. And then when I got my second one, by that time I had kind of had the horse underneath me, and I could I took a little more control. So did you, did you feel the same way? So in other words, when you met your your second platoon sergeant, were you setting the tone? Because I didn't set the tone on my I first meeting. A little bit, but I, still, I still like the confidence, right? And mm-hmm. the reason I know that because I know me post, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I was, man, I was running myself ragged. Like, I would, it's like you had no balance. You know what I mean? Like, I was trying to teach everything, you know, all the classes. The Marines were like, yo, let me teach the classes. But, you know, when you first get to the Marine Corps, you don't know, right? I'll give you yeah. another example. So, you know, when we go to IOC and you go out to, uh, what's the op? Mount Town? What's the last yeah. op at IOC? It's like the three weeks. Palm Fex, that's the name of yeah. it. You know, you go to Palm Fex, right? And like the training at TBS and IOC is like fucking the Ritz-Carlton compared to what you get to train with the Marines. You know? Mm-hmm. So even mentally for me, right, getting back to battalion and being like, yo, we're, all right, we got Mount this week. Where are we training? The barracks. What? 
Yep. Marines are sleeping in there. Like, hey, next. <laughs> I'm just like, this is what? You know? Yep. But you kind of get used to that. And then, you know, early on, Marines are like, yes, yeah, sir, let us teach these classes. We're going to teach them the barracks. I'm like, I'm fucking tired of the barracks. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> teaching it in, in so-and-so's barracks room and putting it on the screen. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I was a little bit, I was kind of coming in. But the reason I bring it up is because I was preparing lessons at night at home. Yeah. I, I was like, dude, I would be at work all day, go home, fucking knock out my three-mile run, you know? Look at my notes for the following day. It's like you're just totally immersed in this infantry Uh world. And I Uh hadn't cracked that yet. And I performance would be better after Afghanistan. I forgot my next platoon because, man, I was done at four. Right. Rain, sleet, hail or snow. I was done at four. Your performance starts going up and it's like, what's going on here? But you don't know. Right. Um, I just uh, no, I still didn't. I still was intending my coming commander, man, because listen, man, I got yelled at for dental appointments. Like I joke about it, yeah, even yeah. me. But like, yo, the the stuff you would get, yeah, the the stuff that you would get, not yelled at for, but yeah, basically I'm held accountable for, mm-hmm. like held accountable for. That's why I'm so hard on the fucking black stuff, the yeah. real stuff. Like you fucking hold me, dudes missing dental appointments. It's like World yeah. War Three, and we're talking about accountability to make sure officers get through training. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. No, so it was all that. That's what I wasn't prepared for. All that little stuff, you know, the administ. But now, like mm-hmm. hindsight, twenty twenty, I understand readiness. Right, if a guy has a get his wisdom tooth pulled or something, and he deploys. Now he's out of the fight. So there's this big emphasis on like readiness and tediousness stuff, and all this paperwork and admin stuff. Yeah, and, uh, I didn't know the vision behind that. I just thought it was. I was like, I couldn't understand. Like, why are we getting yelled at for this stuff? Well, you know, there's a saying like. uh, you know, we, we, we value, we don't measure what we can value, or sometimes we can't measure what we value. So we value what we can measure. Right. So when you think about what makes a what makes a unit really good, it's how everybody clicks and they work to, they, they work, they put aside their differences and work towards a common goal because their leader has more gravitational pull, right. than there is forces pushing them apart. And that, that's a good leader when they can make Marines do things because they want to do it, not because you're forcing them. Right. So how do you measure that? Well, you, it's really hard to measure. So what do we measure? PFT, who's got the best dental records, who's not missing appointments. So we, then we start valuing, valuing what we measure. So although I, you, there is some, something to be said, you know, about good teeth in combat because, you, you know, you get yanked out. I agree with you there. But I also think we put more emphasis on it because we could just measure it. Yeah. And it's like little stuff like Marine falls out of a hump. It's like, did your Marines eat breakfast this morning? Tim Stedman. Yeah, I, I would assume so. I mean, he's got a wife and three kids and a mortgage. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah. you know, you do ridiculous stuff. We got to make the whole march, the whole platoon to chow before the hump, you know, yeah. before the hump. Just like all that kind of stuff yeah. just to make sure yeah. that everybody eats and nobody falls out and all that kind of stuff. One thing we didn't talk about, sir, too, was the ranking, you know, and the power dynamic that plays. So you're talking about the, the ranking of formerly unfit reps? No, in terms of like you and your peers, like no matter what, somebody's getting ranked number one and somebody's getting ranked last in terms of platoon commanders. Yeah. So the, as a company commander, I'm thinking ranking in uh, that I'm going to officially put on their fit reps. Yeah. Right. And uh, in, in the old days, you'd literally put one of four. Yeah. Not as you do it uh, through your scoring, you'll yeah. see who comes out on top. Yeah. So, and that leads to, unhealthy competition in my opinion a lot of times and it was that your experience as well i think it was i don't think people i think people were just kind of in the sense of like 
we're all young lieutenants, right? Everybody wants to kind of be the best, you know? There's almost like a dick measuring contest a little bit yeah. at times. Um, of sense of like, you know, you go into company commander's office and he's like, I need a Marine for an award. Who's got one? And then you're in there mm-hmm. battling. You know, it's like, he's got a Marine's the best. But one thing I'll tell you is, and I noticed a distinct difference, and this is why I came to understand the power of the academy, is because when I was struggling, the first, during my first platoon, when I was struggling with that company, right? There definitely yeah. didn't seem this sense of like true vulnerability. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like real vulnerability. Like, hey guys, I, like to the other lieutenants, like I fucked up. Like, yeah. don't hold this against me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like we would don't use it. Yeah. Yeah. We, and, and, and like help you figure it out and solve it, you know? Yeah. Um, Cause the first one, you know, it's like, Hey man, what you do for your training schedule this week? Well, the training schedule, you know, what are you doing for your attack? Hold up. No, it's just like, damn, man, golly, you know, but versus I had the next platoon, you know, after deployment, after everything that happened, man, it was just like all love. We would sit there, the lieutenants, we would come up with the training schedule together. You know, we covered down on each other. I'll give you an example of a story. All right. I would have never done this. I would have never felt comfortable doing this uh, with my first company. Okay. And those guys are still some of my best friends uh, to this day. But the second company, I mean, like my naval cam guy is different. All right. So when you, you know, when you go to the rifle range, uh, mm-hmm. not rifle range, when you go to the armor, right? Mm-hmm. When you take out the pin and they're like, whatever you do, you take this pin, you put it in your cover. Iron safety pin, right? Mm-hmm. Iron, so you put it in your cover, right? So you don't lose that. That is the most yeah. important thing. Fucking do not lose, right? Yeah. Yo, so I'm at there. We're at the armor. And then a fucking bee or something like hit me on the forehead. <laughs> yeah. And I grabbed my cover to swat it. And what do you think happened? That fire retaining that <laughs> fire pin retaining pin. Yeah. So now I'm a lieutenant at the armory. <laughs> Launch this fire retaining pin. I'm like, oh my fucking God, bro. Yep. You know? But I went to my naval academy buddy, man. And he's like, Are you serious? And he's like, All right. And he organizes like all the lieutenants. You know what I mean? And then it's yeah. like they did you a sweep, Everybody right? Looking at like, why the fuck are the lieutenants sweeping the? You know what I mean? But these guys didn't hold it against me. You know, we joked yeah. about it, whatever. Um, and you know, thankfully, <laughs> yo, to my e dogs out there that don't want lieutenants to fail, we appreciate you. I, <laughs> I just had to suck it up, man. I went, I went to the armor, and I was like, "Hey, Corporal So and So, fire retainment." He just looked at me, walked away, <laughs> and came back and brought one. Mm-hmm. And it was just silent head nod, whatever. But it was just a sense of like being that vulnerable in front of other lieutenants. Yeah. You know, that sense of like, man, like I really kind of kind of fucked up. I don't know if I could have done that in the first group. You know what I mean? Well, how much does that have to do with you? And how much does that have to do with a company commander's style of leadership? Ooh, I think that's a good question. I think it's both. Cause I definitely think my second one was like, I don't know, man. It's like the first group, it definitely felt like, all right, we come together, you know, then it's like everybody's got their marching orders. You know what I mean? And like, I think it was just trying to make it seem like, but everybody kind of had their own thing. You had like first platoon, second platoon, whatever. Mm-hmm. But, and then my second group, man, it was like all up. Like it was like one unit moving together. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like you didn't even really think about the ranking as much as like, yo man, I want us all to win. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit of both. Cause he was a yeah. hard ass, man. He was a fucking hard ass. And so when you think about that, it's like, they just require a different personality type, you know? Yeah. But I mean, like I, I, you can be hard, but also really loving yeah. at the same time. So I, I think you just be frank and brutal in your critiques and brutally honest, but you're also 
just as brutally honest when somebody does something good. Yeah. Right. And then, and then when you're as a leader, and I think this applies for business, like you, if you don't say something on a gut feeling like you would to your own children, and I'm sure you remember your mom doing this, right? Walking by your door, bedroom door, and you're doing something bad. As soon as you hear your footsteps, you stop. And she opens the door. She doesn't need to find you in the act of doing something wrong to say, I know you're up to something. Yeah. So I do that to my kids all the time. But they never stop doubting that I love them, right? But until you, if you, in a, as an officer and a leader, if you wait until you have proof, it so much damage has been done already. It's too late. So you need to you need to be able to counsel off a gut feeling, and only and this only good things can happen. Either your perception is right, yeah. and now you've given that marine a chance to fix themselves, or your perception is wrong, and now you've given that marine a chance to fix your perception. Yeah. But either way, that perception exists, and you're going to mark him accordingly based on that perception. So you can only do right by telling people what you think about it. I'll tell you. And, I'll, and that can be hard to do. I'll tell you two quick stories. All right. So the first story we're doing a. Um, this is so just to let the audience know a little bit about my personality, right? We were doing a field op, right? This is in the workup, okay? Coming commander briefs me is like, Lieutenant Stedman, I need you to build an abatis, right? Mm-hmm. I fucking know what an abatis was. Mm-hmm. I had no mm-hmm. idea, right? He briefs the order. He's like, going to build an abatis, blockage here, whatever, right? Yeah. What do I do? Fucking go home, pull out MCPD, whatever, yeah. and pull up abatis. And what yeah. it looks like to me is fucking... Trees cut down. Tree thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I know my personality profile. I got the cultural index. All right. Autonomy is where I roll. Just give me mm-hmm. left and right lateral limits. Autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he this is this is one thing about like the disconnect. So he tells me you need to build an abatis. Okay. So we go out, we you know, you know how you do the field ops, right? It's really giant LARPing, right? Like the yeah. enemy is like the Lance Corporal in the tree line. Yes. <laughs> go home. You know, but they're like, they briefed the enemy situation. We're doing the training, whatever. And then, you know, I detached to go build the Abattis. And he sees me walking away with the axes and everything. Yeah. Right. And this was done at nighttime. So it was like a night thing. Right. So we go out yeah. there. Um, you know, we go into the woods. I take my men. We make an Abattis, bro. We chop down these trees. Woodpecker trees. Woodpecker, <laughs> fucking woodpecker trees. We <laughs> chop down. Yo, we chop down. We made some sick Abattis. And it's it's like one of means like, when we start chopping and I'm just looking at how massive these trees are, I'm just like, yo, man, this is kind of Those big, tall pines. Big, tall pines. Bro, we, we I'm sorry I keep calling you, bro. I've been hanging around. Yeah, I don't know. I've been hanging I'm around. Not, I'm not active duty. Stop calling me, sir. Uh, so we, I chopped this baddest down. It's like, and it falls so slow in slow motion, these giant ass trees. So we make the baddest, right? Then what do we do? We patrol back to the site, go to sleep. I wake up, fucking range control, lieutenant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? They're like, did you fucking chop down a woodpecker tree last night? I was like, the sir told me to make an abattis, you know? And yeah. it comes across as probably like goofy, but literally, like, that's what I was told to do. Yeah. I fucking figured out I made an abattis, you know? Um, and it was like a b- battalion commander stepped in. He's like, he thought it was funny, but like, because I guess like some unit was going to shoot or something. The blocked. Yeah. These giant woods. for the Marines out there, woodpecker trees in Camp Lejeune, fucking range control. You already know what that's about. Dude, uh, it's funny though how much, like, the moment you said about us, already knew what you're going to say. Yeah. That you cut down a woodpecker tree and fucking range control. You see what my personality profile is? Yeah. Right? Like, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't have enough experience to know this stuff. Like, I'm just kind of, you know, I don't know if anybody else would have done that, but when he told me to go make an abattis, that's what I did. Shit, I love you for that. 
most guys wouldn't do that. Yeah, I figured out. They're still worried about the rules. Right. Now, again, in the Marine Corps, that's probably not celebrated. In the civilian world, they're like, yo, he figured it out. I love it. The Marine Corps was supposed to love you for that. Our doctrine says that. But here's where I'll tell you another story, right, to kind of get personalities. Mm-hmm. When I checked into the unit, okay, and we start going to the rifle range, they would give us mm-hmm. our, you know, you go to the armory, get your Marines, you know, and you go into the field. Everybody checks in, gets their weapons. OK, yeah. Every time we went, got the saw gunners, get the saw gunners. They take their weapons, whatever. Yeah. Fucking six month workup. No issues. We get out to 29 Palms for uh, ITX, which is yeah. the big exercise right before you deploy. And I'm mm. trying to remember what range we were doing. I think it was range not even 410. It was either 410 or Alpha, alpha right? 410 Alpha platoon range. Yeah. Yeah. And what ends up happening is. um Turns out none of our saw gunners have spare barrels mm-hmm. across the company. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I remember when the company commander found out, he brought all the lieutenants in. Right. I had never been issued a sauce. This is again what I'm going back to, right? Like when I got to unit, that's how we did stuff. Yeah. You know, I didn't know. I'm not the only lieutenant. There's yeah. other four lieutenants. None of our Marines had saw barrels, you know? Yeah. And the company, I mean, spare barrels, right? Spare barrels. Yeah. Company commanders fucking rip it into us, right? Like fucking Marines, Bazibah, no fucking spare bros. Are you fucking kidding me? You know, mm-hmm. you're ready to do this range and the guns are gonna go hot, like skin, yeah. like you have to have spare barrels. Yeah, you melt right? the barrels. And I just remember like opening my mouth and being like, sir, we never got issued spare barrels. You're a fucking lieutenant. Yeah. yeah. Where's the cup of gunny too, by the way? Yeah. He's like, you're a fucking lieutenant. You know? And I didn't know, and I will tell you, there's something I did learn from that lesson in the sense of like this higher expectation, mm-hmm. you know, that you expect more. But at the time, I was like, what am I getting yelled at for? Because I didn't know what was done. Like, we've been mm-hmm. here this entire time. None mm-hmm. of the Marines have spare bros. None of the platoons have spare bros, mm-hmm. right? Um, and maybe that was just his way of being embarrassed about having that happen, because I'm sure there's like second and third order effects. Um, to that, but is that no, that's the first time I uh, that's the first real evaluation an infantry company commander gets is at ITX, yeah. Uh, but I so he, all his career's on the line, that's why he probably overreacted. I don't think, in his, yeah, but mm. I remember at the time of being like the disconnect, right? Like, I that's the weird thing when like you feel like you're doing everything right, like you're right, like you cut the baddest or you do this and mm-hmm. get yelled at for it. Um, but see, like, again, you don't know these kind of power dynamics. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are the kind of stories that kind of stick out to me. I told the first one, one just kind of let you know my personality a little bit, and the second one to just pull you into what it is to be a lieutenant in infantry. Yeah, fucking lieutenant. Yeah, you know. Oh yeah, and ate it up. So, did you do you think do you think you ever successfully shook shook it off? What happened to you? I don't. And transition. I don't. Um, because I don't know, man. It's like. It goes back to what I was saying about that failure piece, right? I felt like I was walking a, you know, I was so fair to fucking everything, you know? God forbid you're on the live fire range and a Marine does something stupid and has a negligent mm-hmm. gist card, fucking, mm-hmm. who's there? Lieutenant Step, mm-hmm. oh, you know? So yeah. it was just this sense of like, man, I just felt like I was walking on a thin rope at all times. Yeah. So did that, when did that, feeling ever take off? Did it ever leave you an entire Marine Corps career? It did after I got relieved. <laughs> did was like it all? I don't know, man. It's just this sense of like, once you've kind of tasted the worst that can happen, 
It's like freedom. It's kind of like a freedom. Like everything I dreaded actually happening. And then finally at that point, man, when I get relieved, it's like, and after I build myself back up mentally to mm. some extent, it was just like, man, I had already been shipped to the rifle range. I got relieved in combat. What else I got to, you know, I'm just yeah. here now, you know, so I got nothing to lose. Probably not going to get career designated. So why I'm not running that race no more, you know, yeah. I'm kind of here. And it's crazy because yeah. when I was like that, my performance went up. But the first time I think I was like holding on so tight, trying to, uh, you know, be accepted and, you know, everything else, just trying to prove my, my worth. And it's funny because after I got relieved, you know why? I, that's when I really start getting closer to that other lieutenant. Because again, it's like we're both down here. Might as well, you know, yeah. kind of like you come humbling. You know, it's yeah, like black, humble. people, black people say this all the time. It's like, you can always go home. You know, you go out in the world, try to win your money and do all that kind yeah. of stuff. When you fail, black people always can take you. They'd be like, they're going yeah. to be like, he back here now. Come on, get back to yeah. the house. You know, and it's kind of like that amongst our culture, too. I think like sometimes we try to go out and succeed in the world and we get up against it and you kind of always end up coming back home or something. At some point, it always happens. Like you say some, you say something crazy and get fired from your job or something. Right. And then you end back up around your people. And I don't think you can run. You just can't escape it. You know, man. Uh, that's so I have to have you talk to the lieutenants when I get them this summer. That in three weeks they're coming. You got to talk to them because they need to hear. They need to hear what you're saying, so they're armed. Because I don't want them to be so tight and, and petrified about failure that they end up causing it. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not saying you caused it, but you ha- having some sort of confidence and relaxation allows you to a little freedom. I think, and, and just not be so scared to make a mistake. So. You're gonna. I'm gonna need your help. I'm. I'm trying to I'm, talk. To I'm you. trying to think out loud, right? And I don't know if I've ever really said this publicly, but I think deep down, like in the deepest recesses of like my mind, my heart, I was always worried I was gonna get relieved. You know? Yeah. Because I think I just been up against it too much, you know. And that's just since. And then the way I describe it is like, I played basketball in high school, right? I never. I wasn't a star athlete at all. Right. Boxing was my coming out as an athlete, but I was mm-hmm. going to ride the bench in high school. Mm-hmm. Right. What do you think happens? Right. When you ride the bench, you ain't getting in the game until it's like the fourth quarter. There's two. Then you jump in the game. You know what yeah. I mean? You're fuck. You're not warmed up. Right. You haven't had you got 60 seconds to play. You know, yeah. they throw that pass to you. You're jumbling it. You got all the nervous energy, nervous tension, whatever. You get what I'm saying? Versus having like you come in the game the first quarter. You've been in the game for four quarters, right? You're warm, whatever. There's not all this pressure, whatever. Mm-hmm. Me, man, it felt like I was getting in the game <laughs> 60 seconds left after yeah. sitting on the bench the whole time. Yeah, you wait like, for that shooting drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think just kind of how I kind of entered from the very beginning, which is why I tell this story too, about like, yo, if I'm coming in confidently, you know, like it's almost like I think, and it's probably for like white officers too, after my workup and after my second coming commander, I kind of wish I could go back through IOS through TBS, you know, because stuff will make a lot more sense. I'd be a former versus like going through and learning everything all at the same time. Like the big yeah. thing was the biggest challenge was learning how to be a Marine. Yeah. Like a like an infantry Marine. Yeah. You know, and then on top of everything else, because it's a different world, it's a different lingo, it's a different culture. And so um, and the Marine Corps runs in cycles. Right. Mm-hmm. Why the Marines see, I never understood like why, why do these Marines act so, um, 
What's the word I'm looking for? Then you checking the baton, lieutenant. You fired up, man. I was I probably brainwashed, man. I came in, dude. I my Marines still make fun of me because they still call me. I was like talking Spartans and Gates of Fire, and they're like, oh god, here comes the lieutenant. Yeah. We're like, why is the lieutenant Sparta again? We're just trying to get. You know, like yeah. when you're a lieutenant and you get your platoon, you can't wait to go to the field. You love yeah. every extra. It's like the biggest priority in your life. You know? Yes. But then you realize that like the, the enemy is just the disgruntled Lance Corporal that they throw out in the woods. Mm-hmm. Timing, you know, his attacks, you're like, look, he's lazy. He's going to start his attacks at like one o'clock because he wants to sleep. You know, he ain't moving around. He's describing the infantry perfectly. You know, man, Lance Corporal Smugatelli is not moving around the tree line at 1 a.m. to do a surprise attack. Right. No. It's just not happening. The reason I say cycles is because you know how you kind of do your work up. You go to the patrol, just kind of like IOC and TBS, and you mm-hmm. do it again. So the men mm-hmm. have already done it. They've already done the defense. They've already done everything. So they're like, oh, here we go again. And you come mm-hmm. from deployment. It's like, we got to go to the field again. I just, we, were just, we just did it for six, seven months, you know? Yeah. So like understanding that. So getting comfortable with the cycle, the same thing about shooting. You know, the first time you go to, first time I went to rifle range, I was like, it's just kind of like uh, the way the Marine Corps teaches, it is just very like shotgun fire hose and you're out there mm-hmm. doing it. So not even really getting the time to dial in on the shooting. But once mm-hmm. I understood the cycle and I understood mm-hmm. what to expect, expert, toom, toom, expert toom, toom, every time, you know, because I kind of knew how the system worked. I kind of knew what to expect. And so I was a lot more confident instead of like taking things on the chin like the first time. And that's what made me a good mentee to like future lieutenants after Afghanistan because yeah. I, I already knew what they were up against, you know? See, so you're talking, you're, what you're describing is like a microcosm of what we're describing culturally as a whole, right? So your familiarity with a cycle allows you to relax and you do better. Yeah. But if you, if so, it's kind of like being a white male in the Marine Corps. You're already familiar. You're already part of the club. Your culture's already accepted. You don't have to change anything. And I think if you're not a white male, um, you just you never feel that comfort. You gotta so act. You catch up all the time. And that's what I was saying for us as like black officers, we need that growth time. Yeah. You know, and I, I kind of believe like, yo, you want to recruit more black officers in the Marine Corps, recruit black infantry. Enlisted. Yeah. The corporal course, the sergeant's course, all that kind of stuff. They run the gambit. They know how to be a Marine. You know, put them in. They're gonna tell you go fuck yourself. They're like, I ain't gonna do officer training. They're gonna go yeah. to TBS and they're gonna go supply. <laughs> like that's what yeah. we're gonna do um but yeah once i kind of knew how things worked once i had already had a company commander and gone through that process and all that kind of stuff i just was a lot more confident i think but, you know i was reading an article about this teacher saying uh what makes a teacher successful working with inner city kids mainly african-american and regardless of the color of if a teacher tries to reach out to the child and, and figure out what makes them tick right then the student is successful. They watch students go from one class where they're actively involved and they're confident and they're happy. And they go to the next class and just put their head down on the table and sleep. And they look at the teacher differences and it, it, almost regardless of the color of the teacher, it's the teacher, the student says that the, te- the class where I perform well, the teacher just gets me. So they make it a, an effort to understand and have empathy for that child, right? And I think the same thing with the Marine Corps. I was talking to uh, a kid at VMI um, and he was saying how the the older when he was a cadet or rat or whatever they call him the first year getting hazed they they didn't understand that he had folliculitis which a lot of African Americans had because you have curly hair and it grows back in your skin right but so few white people know that 
So when he's taking more time to shave, he gets shit on. So just the smallest thing, just a little bit of empathy will go a huge amount of way into making him feel different, right? So it's that reaching out towards somebody and trying to understand them and know about them. But we don't, we as an officer culture in Marine Corps, we, we, we know so little about the other cultures that we ex- take in. And we don't go, we, need, we don't meet them halfway. We don't meet them a quarter of the way, right? And you can say the same with uh, African-American female hair and the standards we set. Whose standards are they? They're white culture standards, right? So everything has kind of just been, you just feel, you just never feel like you're, you're making it because yeah. we don't accept you. So that, that comfort with a cycle, I think so many African-Americans and so many women in the Marine Corps, and not just the Marine Corps, we can talk about the whole nation, but we're using the Marine Corps as a microcosm. They just never, they never get in rhythm because they're never quite there. They're never accepted. You got to get that exposure, man, and kind of get through the the grind and everything, you know? And it almost was traumatizing to me too, because after everything, the bottom fell out after my first platoon, you know, to get thrown back in, I was fucking terrified. You know, I was like, I was like, I'm just going to do it all over again. I had a really hard workout with my company commander and then a hard deployment and then to get relieved, you know, and then I get thrown back in the cycle. And I was like, and we're going to talk about that eventually about how that came to be. But I just remember when I was starting to cycle over again, I was fucking terrified. I was like, this is going to be, this is like deja vu all over. It's, it feels like deja vu all over again. It's a nightmare. Like, mm-hmm. and I was like, here we go again. But luckily I had, I just had a different experience. I had a different company commander. But we need yeah. to, you know, we got to get them, um, we got to get our audience to let them know, like, you know, so the warm up, let's keep talking. How do we get to, how do we take them to deployment right before deployment? Yeah. And I mean, I'm nowhere near, I mean, I'm not an interviewer like you. I, I'm terrible at it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you, so we want to, I'm, I, I want to hear about deployment. Do you want to talk about deployment? Well, we're going to talk about it on the next episode, but I want to make sure that we, you know, tell the story from, continuing off of uh before to getting them up to that and then we can end this episode and we can start the next episode so we're here though we're, we're at you you know you've finished right at itx you get a brand new platoon sergeant yeah that's that's a nightmare for anybody yeah it's very hard to change because he he's a number two he's a senior enlisted yeah uh number two in the platoon and the personality the way you you and your platoon or lieutenant and the platoon sergeant have to ma- match and combine is critically important so to, to have your your main person get yanked out and switched right at right before deployment is very difficult. So that's, that's kind of where we are right now. Right. We stopped the story there. Um, yeah, but there's, there's some, I will tell you though. Okay. All kin folk ain't skin folk. Mm-hmm. My platoon sergeant was African-American. I'm surprised to hear that when you said that he was out to get you. Uh, I don't know if he's, I mean, he's, white. he's African-American. Um, he was mixed. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason I bring that up is sometimes, and we don't talk about this enough as people of color, right? Again, I keep talking about it. Look, not just what racism does to us, what we do to each other, mm-hmm. but you're already kind of dealing with the dynamics of like, here's this officer, here's the, he's in charge. You know what I mean? That kind of sense of in charge. Mm-hmm. You've been in the Marine Corps for whatever, how long. Now people choose to be officers, other choose to be not, but that authority mm-hmm. piece yeah. That he has the final say kind yeah. of deal, right? I could see that there was something there with that. You know, had a lot of my enlisted Marines come out and tell me about some of the stuff he said behind my back. Wow. And 
this yeah and even in some of our comments and stuff you know um just some stuff man he has said about just i know everybody struggles with color in their own ways you know but what i do again i think sometimes we get this perception of black inferiority that's ingrained into us yes. even amongst our own people it's like, like just it's like the black guy that goes to the doctor and then a black doctor walks in and he's like, can I get a white doctor? Because exactly. he assumes that that doctor is better. Yeah. So I'm not, I can't, you know, I'm just telling you that my, I felt a little bit of like, this is bigger than just him being in an authority position. This is, you know, that. Mm-hmm. Something deeper. I think there's something deeper there. And so that kind of sets the, uh, you know, stage where, you know, we do this deployment, we do the workup and I did 410, I did all that kind of stuff, you know, sh- kicked ass and took names. And, um, again, I had a challenge out there too for, um, I'll tell another story for 410. It was a company commander's attack. I forgot what it was. Um, range 400. It was range 400. Um, but it was a mechanized attack. I'm trying to, uh, uh, mobile assault course, the mobile assault course. Right. And I was in one of the, the vehicles. Okay. And I think I was at the front, right? Mm-hmm. I was like communicating everything. And you know how like when you're attacking, you're supposed to um, keep the, what's the word I'm looking at? It's, it's, it's weird. This is bringing back like a lot of history in terms of like thinking about how fires work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know how you want to keep fires going on a certain long? Like you want to yeah. be at a certain range so the artillery can stay on. And you keep the pressure going and, and you, you, and you make pressure it. going. So the mortars, the 81s and then the 60 millimeters, whatever. So I just, I was in that lead vehicle, right? And I was guiding, I was guiding, I was guiding it. And then I realized we were approaching on the final, whatchamacallit, uh, the final um, fires before we crossed that line and the fires had to cut off. So I remember having my vehicle driver cut left to keep the firing line going, you know, so the fires could stay on. And it looked like Lieutenant Stebb was going rogue and they fucking blew me up, you know? And we're like, and I remember coming commander like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, but in my mind, tactically, I thought it was the right decision, right? You want to, yeah, the fire. You to break, break, break the ring. Yeah, like, why go right into the attack? You know, keep mm-hmm. the fires kind of going. Um, but I guess that was the wrong tactical decision to make. But I just remember that and that being an issue. Um, and I was, again, when I was thinking, like, I'm about to get in trouble. You know, but I couldn't explain it. It's just like the way my brain worked, you know? Like, it made complete, the stuff made complete sense to me, you know? Um, but to other people, I guess, tactically, it didn't make sense. Yeah. Well, the, the the key thing there is like your company commander should have explained why he didn't. I mean, did he ever do that? Why he, he felt? No, no, he did. He did. He did explain to me. He did explain to like, me. The momentum, I'm assuming. Yeah. And there was another one at like on a 410, you know, you take trench three and then you go to trench two, which is that middle trench. You know, that clearing right there where it's like wide open and it's exposed to enemy fire. So like on range 410, you've got two, you've got three trenches that you got to assault and you got to come at them from the side. And I yeah. remember like, I saw that giant clearing. I'm not about to bop across, you know, I remember throwing smoke to cover it and I had my Marine sprint across. But yeah. then I got hit for tactical on that. And so that what was, was there? huh? What was the reason there? Um, They said I was leading a bayonet charge. <laughs> hmm. But to me, it's like, I can, I remember these instances and to me in my mind, right. It just made complete sense. But being able to articulate it in a way. Like, I can articulate it now, but back then, maybe I struggled articulating it. But, like, all the tactical decisions I made, like, I just felt like they just made complete sense to me. Yeah. You don't know, though. You might have worked. 
You don't right. know. And that's what I'm saying about like this war stuff and all this stuff. It's like entrepreneurship. Everybody's making it up. Let's be honest. Because yeah. once you get yeah. in the hustle of it, it's fucking game on. Yeah. You know? And it's today may not work tomorrow. Exactly. And in results, you know, and to be honest, like a lot of types of stuff we're using are like Vietnam air level stuff. It is. Stuff isn't adapted. So when I see a giant clearing, you know, I'm not going to take fucking 45 minutes to get across it because you're just exposed to it. There were some decisions I made tactically that at the time might look questionable, but to me, they made perfect sense. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, But again, when you add the stigma of the rifle range or tennis tavern, you know, people probably start to put stuff together because the Marines see patterns. Yeah. You know, and they were just all patterns. Uh, and then it becomes self, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Self-prophecy. Yeah. Almost. And mm-hmm. so what I kind of did on my next, again, lesson learned, I just didn't, I stopped trying to think. I just did everything the Marine Corps wanted. That's all oh, man. See, and that's what we create. And that's yeah. exactly what we're not supposed to create. We don't want to tell time, robot. Good attack, Lieutenant Stabman. Textbook. Yeah. Exactly. God. Yeah, because like, after everything... After everything that happens, right now, and that's what we produce. Yeah, after everything that happens, I was just like, well, I went down that left. I went left, and that didn't work for me. So I'm just going to go right. And so every time I saw people going left, I just went right, and I just quit going up against it. I quit fighting it. I quit trying to think. You know, I just did what the Marine Corps said, what the Marine Corps said tactically and whatever. And I just, that's what I did. And I did all right. That's a sad story to me. Knowing knowing what we really want. I want independent thinkers. That's what we Marine Corps says they want. To question things. Yeah, but you got to have the room to fail. See, as an entrepreneur, I fail all the time. Fucking all the time. You're right. And we don't fail enough. We don't want to fail. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the workup and everything, but even after that, but I I bring up those tactical decisions because for me, that was like a sense of like, again, it's like, you want to be perfect, right? You want to hail every, you want to nail every attack. Every att- attacks are big deals in the infantry. Rifle mm-hmm. range, ri- not rifle range, but ranges are big deal in the infantry, right? You can't just punt a range, yeah. you know? Um, but I would always, I just feel like my decisions will always get um, scrutinized, like tactically. But I just felt yeah. like it made perfect sense to, uh, made perfect sense to me. Like to this yeah. day, like I can explain. I was like, I don't know. You look at that. I see something different than you see. You know, and for the longest time, again, you're kind of taught to make, like, think that, like, your thinking is, like, inferior. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I kind of know how my brain works. I know my, my brain processes. See, the way I do things, I try a bunch of different stuff. And how mm-hmm. I learn is it's very hard for me to plan because, like, you plan, 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 but then shit changes. Yeah. You know, and they tell you that. But I'm the kind of guy that, like, I need to kind of get out there and then I need yeah. to adjust and adapt. Yeah. No, yeah, mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to get through a round and make my adjustments. Mm-hmm. Marine Corps is like, yo, yo. You know, there's no yeah. real, uh, there was no real like thinking. I mean, Flow. and you got to understand, my commander was tack book. I mean, he was like by the book, right? I mean, he yeah. probably sleeps next to MCDP one. <laughs> like that. Well, not really. Not if he's not, not if he's not looking for your input. I mean, he can do asthmas and angles and everything like that. And it's one of those things of like, you know, when you write recommendations and stuff and you could t- constantly get told you're wrong, then you yeah. kind of like, all right, that's, there's that. First, yeah. like when you have somebody and you like make recognition, she's like, "Oh, that's a good idea. We should do that." It's like, what? Yeah. You know? Um, so it was, it was a little bit of that. And again, it's like, and the thing was, when you're dealing with like infantry officers, and you know, everybody's like these tactical professionals and tactical precision, and you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. You know how they are, the mm-hmm. IFC instructors and whatever. Everybody, everybody thinks they got it right, mm-hmm. you know. But we're all just taking the information we get, processing it based off of our training. 
and literally yeah. making decisions. Yeah. You know, but at the time you don't really know that. Like you, you, yeah. you assume that this guy's always right. So he was just that kind of guy. And so my, that's what kind of had us go up against a little bit. And then, you, you know, what, what you say about company commanders and the assumptions we make about them when we're, when we're young, think about the damn, think about the power we give the SPCs. Yeah. Like we talked about a little bit before that, you know, they're just big first lieutenants really. And, and they're making these life, uh, lifelong decisions on a lot of career long decisions on a Marine, you know, based on period vows. Yeah. Three years experience, more experience than you have. That's it. Yeah. So again, it's like not even understanding like how I, and the thing I bring it up too is because as an adult now, a lot of companies pay a lot of money for these cultural index training and understanding how their employees think so they can employ them. And one of the things we talked about was like how my mind thinks, how I process information, right? That simple stuff. I took a Kobe assessment. And it told me that I take complex information and I break it down simple style, like three steps. Mm -hmm. That's just how I work. I can't do the big whatever. Um, so I think some stuff that I was doing might have get looked as questionable tactically, but again, it made perfect sense to me. And it may and it might have been what works. We just don't know because it wasn't an enemy out there. It wasn't enemy, right? and that's the end of the game, right? Like, right. <laughs> right. But that's that's the problem with the way we we train in the Marine Corps. We're too industrialized, yeah, and we too cookie cutter, right? Where it's where our doctrine says we need to be creative um, and fluid, but we don't, that's not how we actually operate from day to day. It's very regimented. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. But I, I worked my ass off that workup, man. I was at all the Mount Towns. Like you would have to be, like, I didn't fucking miss a single field out. A single field. Like I was always in, like I was fighting tooth and nail when I have to like leave the field to go to an appointment or something and leave Lance Corporal Smuckatelli in charge or, or whatever. You know, I got, um, I remember one time too is like we were in the tree line and some Marines were dehydrated and a couple of Marines passed out. I almost got hit with a nip lock. Yeah. So little stuff like, I mean, it's just like, but you don't know these things, right? Like, yeah. I don't know, man. You just, I was like trying to, I mean, I, I gave it my all. I really did. Like I was trying to do my best, man. I really love my Marines. I love that platoon. Um, and really just wanted um, to just be a good leader. I tried as best I could um, yeah. with, my, with my Marines, train them. You know, I was on every wow. op. I was in every tree line. You know, and that's the thing about being an infantry officer. Like, you're the last one to fall out. You yeah. know, last one to fall out. But again, the failure piece, like stuff happens and you get hit with it. Well, you're, you're you know, based on what you said about your second platoon sergeant, you're already, you're halfway fucked or 100% fucked. If your yeah. platoon sergeant isn't working with you together and he's talking behind your back, it's done. Yeah. And, uh, that that yeah, will come out on deployment because when shit happens on deployment, you know, and lines mm -hmm. get drawn in the sand, you know, mm -hmm. people start picking sides and whatever, mm -hmm. turn into a whole uh, bit of a mess behind the. Scenes. But we'll talk. We're gonna talk about that next time, right? Yeah, we'll talk about that next time. So It'll be hard to do. Yeah, did, did you think we hit up everything for our audience today? Did we hit enough? I I don't I don't I I I'd like to think we did, but. You're so much better at this than I am. I don't know. Do you think we did? I think so. I think the biggest thing they need to know is I got back to battalion. The dynamics of being a black officer, uh, not really having a group here of black officers to kind of lean on. And we're there, but we're not like, we not mm -hmm. like, it's different, man. Like it's different now. Like now being out, I can put my arm around somebody. Come on, man. Let's keep it real. Let's talk just like you're about to do. Mm -hmm. Not having that there. Um, dealing with having all your tactical decisions questioned. No. Um, maybe it was a thing, maybe it was a stigma, who knows, but it's there. 
you know, mm-hmm. and not have really have an opportunity to fail, really fail and get experience. Yeah. So I guess a, a good takeaway from this too would be like for why I think black officers, man, I think sometimes too is like certain groups, like they need to go through like a cycle or something, you know, like break it down Barney style of like, this is what you can expect, right? Every unit, you're going to go through a patrol fix. You're going to go through this. You're going to go through that. Right. It's just kind of, and having spaces where people can talk about it, where it's not just like, yeah. you know, we do the officer mixes, you know how they do that, but it's all, like, yeah, I remember that. it's all posturing. Yeah. I became a posture, man. Well, when I got in that infantry designation, what's up? My name is Mike Stedman. Yeah. Marines. We need to be more like, hey, like hey, hey, take your hair down. Like, this is what it is. Yeah. You know, you got to have a space safe enough that black people can even talk about the racism stuff. Yeah. And like, look, this is what it is. And some of it is just people just ain't been around black. That's the thing we got to acknowledge too. Like, raise your hand if you've never met any black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like literally. And no, Sergeant yeah. Major don't count. You yeah. know, I'm talking about real black people. How many of you? Because that's the other thing. I, you know, I mean, Marines never seen black people, never met them, never. Now you're making decisions about them. Now you're telling them what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Now you're leading them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. I can't say the same because, look, I went to school with people from the South, been around them my whole life. So when I step in front of them and lead them, you know, it's a different story because I've been around them. But it's different when it's like. You know, you have been around black people and it's like, now you got to talk to them. What do you say to them? Not only that, you think about culturally, it's getting a little bit better now. But I mean, what was on TV our whole life? Was it a black story or a white story? Everything. It's a white story. Yeah. And and in times and in times it's a black story, it's almost always negative. So, I mean, that's what white, I mean, white kids, the typical white kid has been bombarded with through their whole life with books and movies and TV and stereotypes and they've never met a black person in real life they just seen them on tv and how how the, the how white culture depicts that yeah for the most for most so it, it takes time to break that down i think tbs being six months for everybody isn't necessarily the right thing so that that's where the prep course i think is is trying to trying to even the ground just a little bit and give you give people that have you know who are who won't fit into the culture right away, a little bit of time to, to digest what they're about to enter. So they're armed a little bit. To me, it sounds like common sense, right? I think it's like, again, I know everybody's scared about optics and stuff, but like, yo man, I would, (laughs) like you said, like, man, fucking make a black prep course or something. I don't know what's what's working. Ain't working. It ain't working Mm -hmm. fucking 30 years, 40 years. So why are we even pretending like it's working? Yeah, exactly. You got to fucking roll in the, this. You got to roll into the Marine Corps and the infantry, corporate America. You got to roll deep. Yeah. Basically, I'm tired of this one twosies, the whole weight of the world on them. No, man, send them as a group. They can uplift each other. Yeah. You know, because you, I mean, I don't know, man. Like, that's the thing, too, is like, and I, this is why I keep bringing up the black females, man. I've never in my life, I keep thinking about how I must feel to be a black female and be alone. Yeah. And have people, your brothers, the males that look like you, not having your back, you know, like yeah. imagine that the sexuality stuff you're talking about, like all the yeah. calling and stuff. Imagine that's, I can't say that's happened to me, but like, could you imagine being like a, a black officer or something? They're talking about females and one of them happens to be black, you know, and you're in the room and you're not defending her and you're not protecting her. Yeah. It's protection of womanhood. You know, yeah. something I'm just kind of self-aware as I just become thinking back of my own life. I'm like every situation I was in by myself is probably 10 times worse being a female. Yep. You know, yep. you add the sexuality dynamics in there. Yeah. You're right. Man, you 
you're so you made such a big difference in my life, Mike. With I really appreciate your honesty. It's just amazing, and I, I'm I'm so glad that you're gonna be part of the TBS prep course for me too, because these young lieutenants of all colors they need to hear your story. But by the way, and I'm diamond out the Marine Corps for this. That you know the black senior black officers are meeting every once in a while with a three star general, and I, I think the three star general has been directed by the commandant to look at post George Floyd or you know what's going on sensing. Black officer mood in the Marine Corps, but uh, as a result, the Gazette now wants Marine Corps officers, Black Marine Corps officers, to publish articles in the Gazette. You know, and they didn't want my article when I sent it to them. Yeah. But uh, now they want it. But the stipulation is no anecdotes. They just want facts, which I don't understand why no, no, an anecdote can't be a fact. That's what people want, though. They're like, right? Yeah. And a solution. Yeah, I can. I, I listen, man. I'm an educated Black man. Okay. Mm -hmm. World's most dangerous man, smart, educated black man. All right. Mm -hmm. Statistics tell a story that you wanted to tell. It's mm -hmm. like we said before this podcast, right? I want the statistics of the number of African American mm -hmm. native born mm -hmm. officers mm -hmm. success rate in the Marine. Yep. That's what I want. Yep. You talk about statistics. Give me that statistics. Right? Yep. Born in America, African American. That's what I want because a lot of stuff gets thrown in African American category, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, in this statistics, we're stagnant, guaranteed. Yeah. You know, we're going down actually. And that, and what that does, sir, is when you have no antidotes, they want to take out the emotion. Exactly. They want to take out the emotion. That's why your that's why your first podcast of the Always Faithful podcast has has been so powerful because it's it's an honest, raw anecdote, right? It's your story. So that, that story about the black colonel I, that checked in um, with two other white lieutenants, it was told, and he's still in the Marine Corps, yeah. the black colonel, and was told that you will always be three of three. That's every, every Marine should know that story. So, I mean, it just pisses me off that the Gazette's now laying stipulations down that we don't want to hear anecdotes. Just that's what they do. People don't want real information. Listen, it's a way to continue to block out black and brown voices. Yeah. Right? You cannot, like everything I'm telling you, I've lived it. Okay. And I'm not the only yeah. one. You know how many calls I get from people, right? I'm yeah. not saying the entire group. I'm talking about my shared experience. Okay? Yeah. And I know for a fact, I am not the only one. I yeah. know for a fact. Okay. I know what it's like to stand in front of a platoon of all white Marines. I know yeah. what it's like to walk into an officer PME at Camp Lejeune and be the only black guy in the room. Yeah. Right. Don't fucking talk to me about statistics. I'm fucking talking about my lived experience. And that's yeah. the thing, too, is like, see, again, it goes to the power dynamics, right? We have these discussions on race and culture and whatever, but people are holding back. We're not really having the discussion. See, this mm -hmm. is a real discussion. See, we're mm -hmm. talking. This is long-form dialogue. You can't come mm -hmm. in this podcast and take a soundbite. Yeah. You know, you got to come here and sit and talk. And so people yeah. have to have the space that they can talk, right? I used to make people make fun of safe spaces all day, you know? I'm growing mm -hmm. up. This is a safe space. Mm -hmm. A white Marine officer come on here and tell you, you know, how he, how black people viewed down South and his experience mm -hmm. and that his whole family is Confederate, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, grew up with Confederate lineage. And guess what? Mm -hmm. My brother, I'm texting him this morning. This is safe mm -hmm. space, man. We have safe spaces. You got yeah. don't put the aura of a safe space, right? Yeah. You got to bring the fucking radical, like, tell the stories. Yeah. And see, exactly. we don't want to have those stories. They don't want to have a story of the disgruntled black general that no. really comes out. You know, you know what in corporate America do? You know what they do in corporate America? They sign NDAs. Yeah. You can't talk to anybody. You got to sign this NDA. Yeah. You know, you can't, can't yeah. tell about what it's like here, really. 
We're going to give you this nice severage package, but you're going to sign this NDA. Yeah. You know, so yeah. no different yeah. that the military would do that kind of stuff. And it, the, the asinine part about it is like, these are people that go to like, like, like you're talking about, like, how are you going to discredit the stuff I'm talking about? And other black officers come out from the fucking United States Naval Academy mm. or West yeah. Point. Yeah. These are these are American institutions. Yeah. You know, you're all fine and dandy, but don't speak out like yeah. hey, stay in your place. Yeah. It's like, uh, all, I mean, not just not a race base, but all the people that were ready, ready to lick uh, General Mattis's boots. They they call him Saint Mattis, right? And they loved him, but the moment he spoke out, spoke out. Um, I know. It's spoke out, he, now he's demonized and hated by the same people that loved him before, just because he he spoke out. And when I was in, man, they they looked at Mattis like a god. It's crazy. That's why I'm not on social media anymore. I'm the only social media I use is LinkedIn, and I post like yeah. once a week because I got to protect my energy. I got to protect my brain, and this takes yeah. work. This ain't a Facebook comment. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this ain't a text yeah. message. This is a long form podcast um but yeah well, you've made you've made it you've made an impact yeah you really have mike appreciate it but that's funny that they want the statistics and all that kind of stuff that's why we have to create our own platforms to tell our stories and stories of our people because yeah. again there's a whole shared experience and unfortunately people on the outside looking in they can't speak to it god forbid yeah. a black female writes an article because they write to me uh, I wish some. I wish. I wish one. Uh, one of the black females would write. No, I haven't heard from a um, single black female yet, and it. it uh, they need to hear their voices. Need to be heard. Yeah, and I got nothing. Again, for me, like I have nothing to gain. Right, I'm not trying to change the Marine Corps or anything like that. I'm just telling my story. You know, if people want to yeah. listen to it and take advice. Take advice. Otherwise, it's good. Good on you. But I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm still working. I'm. I'm in Newark. I'm grinding it out. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I don't know. I'm trying to change the world in my own little way. You know, I want to create a more, I just want to put, I think we, uh, we just hit a limit on our, our time. I think we did a two hour podcast, which is like a flash for me. I hope it does for the audience. It did. It went by in a flash. Um, apologize about that. I'm not an audio engineer, so we're going to chop it up and make it work as best we can. (laughs) But, uh, it sounds like we, it sounds like we ran out of time. I guess you're going to do two hours on this, but it was such a good discussion. I feel like we were having, I love it. I love it. So where are we headed in the future? All right. On the next episode, we're going to go to, uh, we're going to do Always Faithful Part 3. And we're going to talk about war mm-hmm. and what it's like to go to Afghanistan and mm-hmm. um, my experience there. And which ultimately led to getting relieved. So I will bring us full, I will bring us to the relief um, on the next episode. Um, and just kind of thinking out loud, right? Like, appreciate the surf for coming on and helping me talk through this stuff. Cause I know the first one was like really, really raw emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and y'all probably would have preferred that, but those solo mono podcasts are challenging cause you got to really be in a space to kind of do it. And for some reason, maybe I'm too busy right now. It's just been hard. So this isn't as perfect as it could be, but this is close enough in my book, right? Because perfect is the enemy of, uh, done. Yep. Right. And so I wanted to get this done for you all. And, bring you up and more insight into my thinking and my personality and why I speak the way I do and talk the way I do. And this is an important part of that. And uh, I just want to appreciate the surfer guiding me and being here and uh, helping me get through this. Well, uh, actually we need to tell the truth. You guided me on how to guide you. So let's not, let's not, let's, let's call it like it is Mike. I'm, I'm following your lead, buddy. You're doing a really good job. I appreciate it, sir. All right. Um, Any closing remarks before we close out this show? 
No, it's, I, I can't. It's, it's it's emotionally exhausting for me, and it's not even my life that we're talking about. So I, I just thank you, Mike, for doing it because it needs to be told. Um, and we, we're only halfway there. We got two more to do, I think, right? Two more. Hopefully. But uh, so I, I, just, I just have the deepest admiration for you, Mike. That, that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we're grinding it out, man. I'm telling you, I got to cut off my air conditioner so I can record these episodes. So I'm like sweating in here. Man, we've been on this thing for like freaking like two hours, just grinding out, telling our truth, speaking our truth. Who else would do this? Something's wrong with us. uh, (laughs) Man, we appreciate y'all. And just consider this episode a gift to the listeners. Those of you that came, that listened and heard my story and wanted to know the rest of it. This is why I'm grinding it out for you. And, uh, I'm just really thankful for all the support and love you show this podcast. I want you to do me a favor, though. I want you to go order some dope coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. Got to start supporting our own businesses, Black-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses, hell, American-owned businesses, right? This pandemic has put a strain on small business ownership. And so uh, anything you can do to help uplift uh, the community, um, small business and supporting small businesses is a big way to do that. I would also greatly appreciate it if you would... uh, Donate to ironboundboxing.org. Every donation allows us to support free amateur boxing programs, entrepreneurial training education, and employment opportunity programs for youth and young adults in low-income communities. This summer, we launched, we launched Thrive, our small business incubator, specifically designed for youth and young adults age 14 to 22 in Newark, New Jersey. Thrive participants will have an opportunity to pitch for 7K in cash prizes upon completion of the following curriculum. How to start a business, marketing, small business finance, and entrepreneurial leadership. Are you ready to get in the fight and help our kids thrive? If so, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. Posting and commenting on social media is one thing. Being bold and taking action is another. We could really use your help. So you could donate today at ironboundboxing.org. And I'll also say this, right? I know everybody in America had this big rush post-George Floyd, and now the rush has kind of fell off. But guess what? We're still here in the trenches, grinding away, trying to create opportunities for young black and brown kids in the inner city. And that's not going to change. And so I greatly appreciate if you support our efforts by spreading awareness about the Ironbound Boxing Movement, Thrive, and all the other stuff that we're doing. Also, uh, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, whatever hosting platform, uh, whatever listening platform that you choose. It really helps us in terms of getting exposure out there about the work. And uh, we also greatly appreciate if you leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with at least one person in your network who you feel like could benefit from the, the subject material. Feel free to message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at Mike at We Are Ironbound. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network. Sir, where can they find you? Uh, TJHobbs00 at gmail.com. Tango Juliet and then Hotel Oscar Bravo Bravo Sierra 00 at hotmail.com or gmail.com. Awesome. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't ever feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.